You better be listening to Slezoids or I must break you. On the point of that night, a man's life is at stake. I'm just saying it's possible. And I say it's not possible. I want you to watch this because I don't want to have to do it again. I'll make myself about six or seven inches shorter, okay? It's about right. Maybe a little more. Okay, a little more. Now in Texas, where I come from, we just go out and get a man and string him up. That's right. I say stretch him. Think just a rustler we're after. It's a murderer. If you got any doubts, Tedley, I say let's call off this party. Take him back to judge like Davies wants. This is only slightly any of your business, my friend. Remember that? I knew more than anything that I wanted to play in a picture made from this story. Well, I was lucky enough to do so. And while it's not ethical for an actor to talk about a picture he's in, in public, that is, I'm going to do it anyway. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. And at the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon. Next week, we'll be sticking around with the Westerns and talking dirty men of the law. So join that sleaze. We decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Patreon subscribers also get an on-air shout-out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been doing for four and a half years. So there is like 110-plus bonus episodes, as well as our bonus transmission series, which we've been doing a lot recently, where we talk about uh, new release uh, genre films, which we just dropped a big one on David Mm -hmm. Cronenberg's Crimes of the Future and, uh, you know, a couple other big heavy hitters. Uh, So, again, if that interests you at all, patreon.com slash podcast. And speaking of which, we have the patrons to give their shout outs here today. We have uh, Valen Oteta. We have Chad O'Neill. We have Brady uh, Childs. We have um, Hamish Bruce, Flower, Jealous Cactus, uh, Nicole Stewart, David, uh, James McDermott, John Mulholland, John Hampus Bistrom, Witty Username, (laughs) Kyle Papayano, Sam Grass. Ross Warner, Nate James, Joshua Fodor, and Samantha. So thanks to all of you folks. Hope you are all enjoying those bonus episodes. We appreciate the support. Yeah, Uh, that's the one plug for the week. The other plug for the week, as always, is uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you are listening to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, I can see the stats. I see that you that you are. I see you right now listening on those platforms. Scroll down to the very bottom and give us a good old rating and review down there. It helps us climb the ranks and find new listeners. And the very last plug for the week, as always, is merch. If you like the poster art that based out of Toronto horror artist Trevor Henderson did for the show, you can get that basically put on anything that you can think of. And you guys have thought of a lot of things. Notebooks, (laughs) uh, uh, hoodies, uh, pillows, uh, just a a poster, you know, whatever you can think of. You can probably uh, get the Sleezoids logo on it. That link is in the description as well as at Sleezoidspodcast.com. But that is it for the intro. Welcome back to another week. As always, I am your host, uh, Josh Lewis. And joining me also, as always, is my co-host, Jamie Miller. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome. I think uh, two weeks ago would have been the last time you folks would have heard from us. And we would have had special guest uh, Noah Colwin on from the Blowback podcast to discuss two underseen 80s thrillers that apply some real world, ugly statecraft and foreign policy uh, examinations into their fun genre thrills. We talked about one, The Whistleblower from 1986, starring Michael Caine. 
Lightning, which was kind of a John Le Carre-esque TV film that was cool to talk about, especially Kane's performance. Mm-hmm. And we paired that with The Mighty Quinn from 1989, starring uh, Denzel Washington as a oh, yeah. Caribbean island sheriff named after the Bob Dylan song. And yes, he does cover the Bob Dylan song <laughs> in the film. He does a nice little reggae cover of it. It's wonderful. It is. It's great. And yeah, he's got uh, all the swaggering charisma that we know and love him for. 1989. Yeah, it came out in between his Oscar nominated performances. So most people don't really talk about it, but Mm -hmm. it it, it totally predates his uh, more fun, thrillery side he would get into in the 90s and early 2000s, especially with Tony Scott. So anyone who likes those films, recommend checking out The Mighty Quinn, very underseen. And then last week, over for the uh, bonus patrons, for your guys' exclusive episode, we did a massive episode on uh, on some some heavy hitters. We talked about uh, some self-reflexive thrillers that take uh, sort of Hitchcock voyeurism and 70s paranoia into the 80s and get a little pervy and, and lurid with it and little uh, sort of meta with the idea of American filmmakers caught in murder conspiracies. We talked about Brian De Palma's blowout from 1981 his uh, doomed romance masterpiece on oh, yes. artifice and illusion and trying to reconstruct the truth literally using the filmmaking process and we paired that with 1984's special effects directed by larry cohen which is larry cohen's attempt at making a vulgar brian de palma-esque film you know <laughs> more akin to probably de palma in like body double or dress to kill mode or something a little bit uh, sleazier in that way mm-hmm. yeah and but I, I, I very just fun to talk the- about the tacky sets and it turns into like kind of a, this surreal meta thing that, that is uh, very entertaining and gets pretty kind of f- oddly funny, but very dark at the same time. Yeah. It was the darkest magic of the movies, uh, <laughs> double feature ever. Cause in special effects, it's Eric Bogosian playing the director who is a serial killer trying to adapt his own killings into a film and <laughs> yeah. also trying to use that film as like, uh, a framing device. <laughs> so very strange film. Fun to talk about. Uh, again, patreon.com slash these ways uh, podcast. That was last week's bonus episode. But moving on to this week, we have a very special returning guest joining us. He is a uh, hip hop and music journalist for Rolling Stone, GQ, Pitchfork and and many other um uh, places. And also he is a fellow film bro who has been on this show before. That yeah. is Jason Buford. Jason, how you doing? Hello. Love the uh, considering me a fellow film bro. We love to see it. <laughs> yeah, man, absolutely. I mean, after last time we talked to you, we had a crazy talk where we did uh, black exploitation <laughs> satires with Rudy Ray Moore's Petey Wheatstraw, the devil's son-in-law and Spike Lee's bamboozled. And we got a lot of positive feedback on that. So as far as I'm concerned, you have been deputized. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate it. Um, love to be here. Uh, I'm, I'm yeah, well, welcome, talking. welcome. Yeah, I mean, I'm interested in talking about uh, two really great movies. So, Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, as it goes, we have the guests bring the double feature with them this week. So, Jason, what are we talking about this week? We are talking about 12 Angry Men, Cindy Lamette's uh, 1957 classic, and we're talking about the Oxbow Incident 1943 William Wellman classic. Hell yeah. Yeah, because yeah. you, you you came to me and you were like, yeah, I really want to talk about 12 Angry Men. And I was like, interesting. Okay, I'd yeah, be down to I do had, that. But... <laughs> I, I had so I had seen it 
um, I think I, I, I approached you a few months ago. I had just seen it a few days ago. And I was like, damn, this movie fucking rocks. I was like, oh, I yeah. got to talk about it somewhere. Yeah, you know what I mean? And and usually I'll I'll, I'll just DM Josh be like, yo, I just saw this. Like, uh, how does it fit into sleezoids or whatever? <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so then, so then we we started kind of coming up with some pairings, and it happened just from the 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 magic of always be watching movies. Uh, I happened to watch something that really reminded me of Twelve Angry Men, which was yeah. this film, The Oxbow Incident, predates it by you know almost a, a, a full decade and a half, pretty much. And so I was like, well, I was just thinking about Twelve Angry Men recently, so let's 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 talk about these two because both uh, are very stripped down, very tightly directed examinations mm-hmm. of. Of, you know, you have one, you have like the masculine sort of social pressure towards violence, uh, especially in an Oxbow incident where it's, a, <laughs> a, you know, it's a little bit more like they actually want to do the violence with their own hands. Yeah. But you also get the procedure of kind of like sort of like mob and frontier justice. And then you also get, you know, all sort of uh, developed into these very stirring and effective morality plays essentially about the death penalty. Uh, and they and they 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 hit you pretty hard while also being pretty spare and pretty simple at the same time. Like mm-hmm. it's it's yeah. it's very impressive. Yeah, um, I felt that way as well. And I also think it has to do with this level of uh, mob justice, if you will, or mm-hmm. lack there, or justice lack thereof, rather uh, this like mob mentality, um, as you talked about, of violence and mm-hmm. um, you know environment as well. Right, twelve of your men takes place notoriously in a room and it's hot as hell and <laughs> yep. you know emotions are flying and so it's it's all crazy and i think oxbow incident is in the small town it starts in the saloon it's like you know what i mean so i think too it's also talking about setting and how mm-hmm. those things aid to this level of uh masculinity and yeah. uh, uh, uh violent pressure if you will hell yeah yeah for sure well uh I'm excited to uh, get into it. So let's start off here. Let's start with uh, 12 Angry Men. Shut up. You're a sadist. 12 men turned into 12 clawing animals. Kill them all. Kill Right, we are talking 12 Angry Men, the 1957 American courtroom drama film directed by Sidney Lumet and adapted from the 1954 teleplay of the same name by one Reginald Rose, which would eventually be turned into a stage production, which is why most people uh, or, you know, some people uh, commonly mistake this film as an adaptation of a play but it is mm-hmm. not it was actually turned into a play after it was actually a tv i don't know if you, i guess you call it a t- it is called a teleplay so i guess it was <laughs> it was you know it was kind of like a production that was done specifically for television mm-hmm. um but uh it's worth talking i think a little bit about Sidney lumet because we've you know he's obviously he's a legendary american film director we've previously talked about him only once but he he's behind he's done such film as as network Serpico, Failsafe, Prince of the City, and of course the one that we de- did cover, Dog Day Afternoon, which we uh, talked yeah. about with uh, the producer of The Guest, Keith Calder. He came on pretty early on during the show to talk about 
the very speaking of once again of another hot movie, uh, another hot <laughs> New York yeah. movie, a very pressure cooker uh, kind of thing. And it was it has a really cool structure to it where like it starts as a leaned bank robbery genre set piece kind of thing. And then slowly over the course of cranking the temperature on its characters reveals that that is actually a symptom of a very sort of desperate type of person and a very desperate uh, city is lots of stresses of sort of class and queer struggle kind of come up on the periphery. And, you know, there's like a very gritty texture to it. And you have Pacino's very raw nerve kind of uh, performance that he's giving. Um, but all of this came from this man, Sidney Lumet, a Jewish American and Polish um, with a Polish immigrant parents who got his artistic start actually in Yiddish theater and off-Broadway stage productions, which is why he's so uncommonly good in both Dog Day Afternoon and this film, as we'll talk about. Uh, so good at character and dialogue and paying yeah. attention to blocking and moving with the actors. And, you know, like, he's very, very good at that. And that came from his experience both on the stage and also from directing TV, where he had to hone uh, a style that a lot of people aren't the most excited to talk about because it's a style that, you know, broadcast TV requires a lot of quick turnaround. It requires a lot of simple setups. It requires a sense of uh, economy that, you know, uh, there's not a lot of very artful flourishes to his style. And actually, he says he ta he's talked about it in a million interviews. He doesn't he he hopes that his directing is invisible to people and that he he never put anything for the sake of anything. He never liked to exaggerate things. He was very like. You can get psychological subjectivity out of your characters by just having them give very natural performances and, you mm -hmm. know, uh, maximizing the moments of their blocking, you know, by using framing and, you know, movement and staging and things like that. He's like, you don't have to be like a boring TV director who just puts the camera down. Yeah, his his style is actually so reserved. He's actually been compared to um, neorealists at some point in his career. So you have this, you know, this this guy who grew up poor on New York, sort of like Lower East Side, who saw poverty and violent police firsthand. And, you know, uh, he he as a result, he fell in love with all of these stories about, you know, trying to maintain morality and corrupt society. And so many of his most well-known films are, you know, uh, about the subject Failsafe, Serpico, Dog Day Afternoon Network. Uh, one of his early films that I saw as part of the uh, Holocaust uh, Film Festival that I helped program was a film called The Pawn Broker, which was about a Jewish concentration camp survivor who opens up a shop in Harlem and begins to, like, relive his traumatic experiences uh, seeing the dehumanizing treatment of the poor and disenfranchised who live on his block, which mm -hmm. he depicts through, like, these fractured flashback edits and stuff like that. So uh, very much... Going back and seeing where this guy started, I think, is 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 interesting. And that's what we're going to be doing today. We're going to be talking about this film, 12 Angry Men. Now, Jason, I think we were talking a little bit before we started. You said that this was like one of like the first like classic films that you ever saw. So this one like really made an impression on you. Yeah, this is what uh, I saw this at a very early age. I, I, I saw this, I think, maybe like sixth or seventh grade. I, I saw this one. And yeah, it, it blew me away. Um, the overarching theme of it, the sense of, of justice, this one humane guy uh, with a mm. bunch of either skeptical or just straight up inhumane people in the, in the room with him. And then you have, I think, too, this level of, you know, the criminal justice system and as well how 
they view the defendant uh, mm-hmm. compared mm-hmm. to how they view themselves. So it's uh, I, I it always made an impression on me. Yeah, yeah. And I'm assuming most people are going to be familiar. But in case there is one person out there who is unfamiliar with the story of 12 Angry Men, it is very loosely about uh, 12 jurors, all men, all very angry, who <laughs> get locked in, a, in a, a room together on the hottest day of the year to, uh, you know, deliberate on a case that's been presented to them about an 18 year old Puerto Rican boy's guilt in the case of murdering his father. And when the film starts, there is like this sure thing. The prosecution put up like an airtight case. The dude is guilty. And, you know, uh, they are asked and charged with, you know, reviewing the evidence and possibly putting him to death uh, and, and giving him the death penalty for his crimes. And it is very much a, uh, you know, post McCarthyism investigation of kind of prejudice and mob mentality and justice and, you know, a very sort of like high noon as well from 1952, the Fred Zinneman film with Gary Cooper. It's like a morality tale set against, uh, you know, that this idea of one person standing up and doing what's right in like a very sort of corrupt uh, sort of process or a corrupt system in kind of a way who in this film mm-hmm. is played by Henry Fonda, who I also believe is our first time talking about Henry Fonda, but who is a, a, yeah. a wonderful actor who I've seen lots of times and just has a, has a real like intelligence and sensitivity to him yes. that translates like really well on screen. It, it makes you really, he's, he's very easily a confident and likable character without necessarily being like a tough character, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, on, and honestly, the first thing that jumped out to me with this is like just the, the, the opening shot showing the, the giant pillars in the courthouse and just kind of like this, this overlooming architecture that goes in with the bureaucracy. Like it's just, it's, uh, you know, it, it is very overwhelming. I imagine to walk up those steps, especially if you're an 18 year old that might be, you know, up against the death penalty. Um, I just think that his like slow pan showing just how huge this place is, uh, is, is a great like starting point. Yeah. Um, and the, the low angle shots of like the pillars and everything as you like walk up the steps and yeah. yeah. And then he kind of walks into the court too. And you see people actually, you see a couple people, um, s- celebrating, which might be, if I'm not mistaken, the people that think the kid is guilty. Uh, and so they think that maybe they did a good job. I can't quite remember there. I remember there's an old woman right before they get into the uh, court that show like she's kind of being um, she, she seems happy about what's going on. But then it goes into the court, shows this big pan of all of the jurors that we're going to see uh, discuss this case in the room. Um, and I just, I just love all of the establishing shots. I mm-hmm. think it's a great, yeah, I yeah, love I how really bored don't. the judges as he's <laughs> explaining to them, you know, like, you know, if there is even a slight bit of reasonable doubt in your mind, you know, you guys, it needs to be a unanimous decision and you are faced with a grave responsibility. And I thank you gentlemen for, you know, overseeing this case of premeditated first degree murder. And while he's saying this, he's like playing with a pencil. And he, he yeah. cu- couldn't look like he looks like he said this a million times Just and he does not at all. Re- yeah, he doesn't respect yeah. the 
severity of what's happening. And then it crossfades into the jury room where about 99% of the film is going to take place. There's a brief scene that takes place in the bathroom across the hall. And then there's a brief scene at the end that takes place mm-hmm. outside the courthouse. But other than that, and- we crossfade into this room with the kid's face also right. uh, superimposed over the room as they enter it, just like looming over the events. And like this is so the kind young. of simple... This is the simple yeah. kind of filmmaking I was talking about that that he very much does, but is very powerful. And yeah, that kid, he looks like a baby. Yeah, like I thought until they say that he's 18, I thought he was like 14 or 15 years old. Um, so they really do like accent how young this 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 kid is and what he's really up against here. Um, and yeah, mm-hmm. it just it, it does uh, the way that Sydney shoots these conversations um, is, is unbelievable. He does a lot of these things where he does like to establish where people are and kind of just the, uh, the, the tension or just the feeling of the entire room. He does these wide shots of everybody talking, but often he'll, uh, in order to show focus on two people having a conversation, he'll go from that wide shot and, and kind of zoom in to the two people to focus in on their conversation. Ooh. It's just a great way of still signify, signaling that, you know, everyone is having their own discussion about this thing. But right now we're we're channeled in on on two people about this case. And he does that throughout, uh, does a lot of great close ups uh, when people have kind of like really definitive moments, like when they they make a good point in their argumentation or something like that. He's just it, it's very um, intelligent filmmaking. Yeah. And I also think he does a good job. The filmmaking does a good job of understanding innately. These are different. All these men are different, right? Like this mm-hmm. idea of. Yeah. I remember there was a scene where um, he's talking to one of the more analytical type of uh, type of fellows, and and he's got glasses on, and and mm-hmm. they're debating, you know, whether he can see that well. And I and there's like a there's a way where on the glasses and 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 what they're talking about, and it's almost to say like, okay. Well, yes, this is a stage play. Here is this characterization that we're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, like I, I think that like the way that this is built around like long conversations between these characters in battles of like moral value, political value, contradictions in literally just the, the logistical procedure of the justice system. And like, you know, whether, you know, it, it's like whether they're being sort of uh, petty or pedantic in terms of their arguments or whether they actually right. are trying to come to some truth about, you know, sort of this sub- subjective experience and, and things like that. And it turns this is what like should be mundane because jury duty for anyone who has been partaking in it at all it's the most boring thing in the universe it's so long <laughs> you want to die you want to sleep like it and really to like... turn that into such a claustrophobic like pressure cooker of who we believe ourselves to be and our like our responsibility towards one another as like an organized people like it's, it's just it's really impressive because jamie was talking about like the build-up to the dramatic moments and then followed by like you know moments of rest and quiet to kind of like mm-hmm. you know give you a break from it so that it can swell back up but also just like the the way that the camera follows a character when they get up because they're frustrated and then it will you know stop and land with another character who then reacts to them and as jason was putting it then each character being like a fleshed out unique person who comes from a different perspective and we don't have time probably to get into like every single person's exact characteristics or anything but like i you leave this film being like you get an idea of everyone's 
deal. Like Martin yeah. Balsam is in this film from Psycho, Cape Fear, all the president's men. And he mm-hmm. is like just a like high school football coach. And literally his immediate you get a vibe of him immediately because he just like takes control of the voting. And he's just kind of he doesn't really have a, a say one way or the other throughout the majority of the film. But he's he's there. He's present. He's listening. He's very different than, say, the guy who is a jury number seven, who is the salesman who's just there being like, oh, my God, this needs to hurry up. I want to get to my baseball game, who is who yeah. I imagine um, Jason is in this situation. He just wants to get to that Yankees <laughs> game. So I yeah, I do respect, you know, obviously I wish it. He was taking this more seriously, but at the end, Reddick was stuck wanting to put your feet in one football game. It's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I also he really love... couldn't care less about this. Actually, it's very funny. He's like, yeah. he's like, he's like, man, I'm just trying to watch the ball game. And I think at one point, someone's like, "Are you crazy?" Like, <laughs> he's also a man of like we're very. Life. We're talking about a man's life here. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. He's also a man of of a very like. Uh, small pleasures which i i liked because eventually after all of this you know this really heated discussion has happened it's about like 50 minutes to an hour into the film and he gets the fan working and he's like ah things are looking up (laughs) like it just like everything is still (laughs) heated but at least you know we're a little cooler uh i did really like that um i also like when the the jurors start to use their like that specific personality trait about him even when he's you know, kind of doing the right thing, but he's doing it for the wrong reasons. Like he's just like, once again, I'm going to switch my, my vote to, uh, not guilty, but it's not because I actually think it, it's just because he wants to get to the game and wants to get out of there. Um, and even someone that, uh, thinks that the kid isn't guilty still pressures him. And it's just like, well, you're doing this for the wrong reasons. And I don't respect you for that. So I I like that they, they start to attack their, kind of like the, the personality traits that are directly connecting to their arguments. Um, it's just really smart writing. Yeah, it is. It is you, very you, much you so. You really get a, a good sense of all of these different characters. You have Lee J. Cobb from The Exorcist, who is uh, playing the very, the very hot-tempered guy who is kind of estranged from his son and is very dog-headedly passionate about, you know, like killing this kid, essentially, because of yeah. his relationship, uh, personal relationship to his son. And then you have the juror who is like, very uh he's a very analytical like stockbroker who is the guy who's very much about the facts and he's definitely like the coolest one the most reasonable quote-unquote reasonable but like to a point that it's almost frequently he's ignoring humanity and i love too that they even they have little moments of dialogue where they address that they're like man don't you ever sweat and he's like no I don't because like hey, it's yes. the hottest day of the year. They got the windows open. Everyone is so uncomfortable. And this guy is like full suit will never sweat in his life. Like it, it is a moment where he is like a reptile man to these yeah. characters. And, and there's lots of great have, little moments like that. I have a, uh, I have a take about what that guy is supposed to represent. I mean, we yeah. can get to it later, but no, we can do it. Yeah. We, I mean, so a lot of what this movie, I think, is a response to is kind of like the lynch mob idea of the McCarthy era, right? Like the blues mm-hmm, mob yeah. hysteria, and it's like it's a rebuttal to it. That's kind of what I kind of feel about it. Absolutely. Um, and, yeah, and I think juror number four kind of represents, and you've you got stuff going on now that are that is kind of like this, represents a kind of soulless you know, establishment person that's not that is ignoring humanity for this like 
logicked thing and this like yeah um, it's like purely oh, logical to an extent that yeah, there's no emotion at all yeah. yeah and i think he represents stuff that's still even going on in the mainstream level of the democratic party mm-hmm. about kind of um not talking to people and only focusing on themselves and what their process is and mm. while he might be a better person than juror number 10, who's like the actual bigot, <laughs> right. he's still not where he needs to be. You know what I mean? So I think that's that's always, that's when I've watched that, that's always how I've interpreted juror number four to be. Yeah. And I, yeah, I also yeah. like well, when he, I, 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 oh, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, uh, kind of going off what you said, Josh, about the, the sweat line. I like that eventually when his argumentation is broken down. Uh, it shows one beat of sweat over his head as if it's like, oh, it's that one time that his logic or whatever, his 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 unbreakable logic was defeated. Uh, and that's also the same point, I think, when he decides to also go not guilty. But, you know, he, he has to his point needs to be driven into the ground before he finally gets there. Um, and I just I just love that they show that little beat of sweat as if, you know, he's finally broken down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and I, I love that all of this stems from Henry Fonda's character, juror number eight, who it's he's a he's a very interesting character because he's the one person and they all go. There's always one. He's the one guy <laughs> who votes not guilty on the first pass. Like immediately, all of those people were on, on the fly were ready to just kill this kid like off. the And, and he was like. And his reasoning wasn't that I don't think he's guilty. Mm-hmm. His reasoning at the beginning is. I think that it should be more of a discussion, the idea of killing a kid. Like, that's it. Like, that's his only, he's just like, this kid deserves a little bit of dignity. There is supposed to be some sort of sanctity to the way that these events go. And very clearly, none of these people are giving it the seriousness or severity that, you know, the decision is meant to have, not even the judge. Mm -hmm. So he takes it upon himself to be like, I will force these people to think about this more severely and over the course of the film as it you know sort of develops it just kind of becomes a series a series of going back through the evidence with these characters and each person kind of coming to a realization that we're like oh that you know there's something interesting about that where if you bring in outside context that wasn't manipulated by the prosecution and you think about it as a human being for a second you know all of a sudden you're just like there's a little bit of doubt there and a little bit of doubt there obviously is the kind of thing that you know, you're supposed to not kill a person over. And I like so I like that it starts just with that, right? It's it's just the idea of like you said, he's not necessarily not guilty, but we don't know enough. So we need to have this discussion. And even after he uh he gets one of the other jurors on his side, I believe it's the old man, uh, he even outright says that it's just the same thing. He doesn't necessarily believe the kid isn't guilty, but he also thinks it warrants discussion. So it's just, I think it's these like small pushes that just happen throughout the film until finally each person's argument is broken down so that they can at least see that, you know, it's not, it it can't possibly be a certain thing. And that's really what they're looking for is a, you know, hard evidence. It's, it's a certainty that this kid murdered his father uh, because we're sending him to an electric chair. Um, so yeah, I just love that. It's just a series of like little pushes until, until everybody's uh, seeing at least with an, with a more open mind. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like you, 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 spoke about the old man he gets actually one of my favorite 
moments where they're testing the evidence, which is mm-hmm. um, they're going through the one of the oral witnesses. So there's a, there's an old man who lives beneath the apartment that the boy lived in, and he testifies on the stand that he heard the boy yell, uh, I'm going to kill you. And then he heard a body fall on the floor and he heard the kid run down the stairs and he went to his door fast enough that he saw the kid run down the stairs away from the scene of the crime. So he didn't witness anything exactly, but he he heard it. And they uh, they compare that with other testimony from a woman who was living across and who could see through the L train, see the actual stabbing took place. And they go, well, how could the old man have heard that? altercation take place including what the boy yelled and including the man falling um if the train had been going by because it's so loud and i love how it too comes from a sense of like you know sort of like local personality where they go look who who are the three or four of us who are poor enough to have lived right next to the fucking train yes Um, and they go they go well you know i can tell you from experience that i've wanted to tear my ears off every single time a train goes by like you you would not have heard anything and the old man steps up and actually expresses he he provides a sort of emotional uh theory to they go well why would this old man say he heard something he didn't hear and the and he goes look i'm an old man i'm at the end of my life i'm someone i'm i'm someone who realized that maybe my life didn't have as much meaning and importance as i hoped that it would and i would understand wanting to trick yourself into believing that you could be helpful in a case like this and there's something so the the way the camera pushes in while he talks about that and you can so see in his performance that he's talking about you know decades of life experience that could lead to someone doing something wrong and not knowing that and i think that to me speaks to what the film is trying to do all the time, which is trying to bring in, you know, local, real, lived in context, decades of life experience and humanity and trying to be like this information should be what's included in a case. It shouldn't just be, you know, uh, a forced confession or a prosecution just hammering home and, you know, not giving you every piece of information that you should have. And the, the film makes a really great emotional case for it with its writing. Mm, yeah. yeah, it definitely does. I think, too. In a lot of ways, it goes back to how raw I think the characterization is, the script is in this too. Right? I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's Resident Evil has such a great screenplay in this. I mean, um, as, as you talked about the the I talked about the older man, and 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 I think he's also talked about himself in a lot of ways. As you talked about, you know, his his life experience, and then you have, yeah, I mean, and then and then you have juror number six who who. Um, you know, doesn't like uh, doesn't like the elderly being abused, right? Like, that really doesn't like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, yeah. I mean, you just have like certain you, you just have like certain idiosyncrasies for every single juror. Besides eight, by the way, which is funny, we don't really know that much about eight. Besides him being this human justice seeking architect, yeah, guy, right. Like, we don't know anything about him in terms of the like little details as we do like the other jurors, kind of. Yeah, like not, not not like number five, who we learn like grew up like in the slums, right? Who is like the character who's really upset by all the racism because yeah, he's just right, like, look, right. I've I've lived in this kid's situation, and not every kid is like a violent monster who can't speak English. Yeah. He's like, what are you talking about? Like, this is very clearly none of you have you know uh, you know know a poor person. Yeah, I also <laughs> love when he spins the guy's racism against him. Like he uses his own stupid racist logic, and he's like. 
you you will believe this woman who is of a Mexican descent, but won't believe in this kid. Uh, so it's I just like that they like spin his ridiculous logic against him, and they do it again, not with the racist guy, but with uh, the the angry guy that stays until the very end as um, as guilty. Uh, and mm-hmm. I can't remember exactly what they do, but he gets so flustered. And, and and is so hardened in his point that eventually his his very point kind of does this like horseshoe effect that goes around and proves the point he was not trying to make. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and I, I also loved those writing writing beats where they were using their own kind of like logical fallacies against them and their own racism against them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it yeah. definitely has a great buildup where it, it 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 builds with we are just slowly analyzing sort of details and trying to come to some sort of, uh, uh, you know, truth about it. They're small little ones, like when uh, juror number uh, eight pulls out a knife, a switchblade <laughs> knife. And he's like, yeah, I went down the street and I bought this knife. And they were like, you know, this this kid's story, it, it's supposed to be that, you know, he went and bought a knife and then he lost the knife. And then all of a sudden his father was killed. And like, that's a, obviously a, an insane coincidence. But he goes, dude, he grows up in a in a place where there are lots of people yelling at each other there is all kinds of domestic violence and there you can buy you know a knife on any fucking street corner he's just like it's it's not like you know it's not like as much of a coincidence when you put in the real world context of it and there's a part where the juror that you were talking about jamie he he picks up the knife and tries to show how he would like plunge the knife into his dad and uh Mm -hmm. literally one guy just chimes in and goes that's not that's not the right knife because literally right. he did, he confused the one that juror number eight bought at a store and the one that's actually supposed to be the murder weapon. So then that's like a little moment where he goes, oh, wow, like those two things could be indistinguishable to someone like someone could mistake those things even on like a small level like that. And my favorite yeah. moment with him is the one where he starts going on his rant about this idea of, you know, all, all you guys got your hearts bleeding all over the table about this kid and his background and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And they immediately go like, well, who like, why are you so for this? Like not no one is being like, this is the most innocent child in the world. We're just going, is he guilty of this? And we're just yeah, going through the process. Yeah. yeah. And um, and he eventually reveals himself to just like be so bloodthirsty for this kid that they, uh, literally juror number eight insults him and calls him uh, a public uh, Avenger. And you want you are trying this personally not due to the facts and you are a sadist and what does he say to him he says to him i will kill you and they briefly brought up earlier right you know how how could the man overhear this kid saying i'll kill you and then him not have killed him because obviously if you say that that means you're gonna do it and then juror number eight gets to retort in that moment with you don't really mean you'll kill me do you and he just absolutely slaps him in the face with it, which is around the point where like they finally get the vote like six to six evenly split. They call it extra innings. Like there's a little <laughs> bit of sort of like sense of sense of humor to it, but it is like yeah. very satisfying watching it just go around the table and just watching each person go, okay, enough has been built. I'm voting not guilty. I'm changing my vote. Yeah. I'm going not At least guilty. Enough and you, for doubt. Yeah. yeah, you just, you, you just slowly watch him win, win people over. Somehow the movie is like incredibly within the confines of the room, but it's also very cosmic, right? Because you have yeah. have everything always circles back with one another. You talked about kind of uh, yeah. them re- 
not recognizing the knife, it's kind of going back to this idea of like the glasses thing, right? Like, mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. do, how well do you really see things or how well do you really remember what movie you saw last week, right? It's always right. has to, something always has to do with the other case or the other details about the case. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love yeah, um, everything is definitely used. Like if, if a piece of information is brought up, it's used like three or four times before the movie is over. Because again, it's all about intersecting these things. He's like, all of this evidence has to make sense together to tell a story. So it's almost like they're breaking it down piece by piece and being like, well, what doesn't make sense? And they literally cast out on every single piece um, of evidence over the course of the film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, one of my favorite parts, and I, th- I think you mentioned it, Josh, but also um, just how it deals with the uh, the, the, the class um, as well, with the guy that shows them the switchblade, and he says like he, w- he grew up around them, so he knows that you can't even use them that way because of the switch itself, and I just, I, I loved his yeah, uh, little performance moment. of like how you would hold it, because if you held it the way that they're saying and flipped it, you'd just cut yourself um, and yeah, I just, I, I thought that that was a, a fantastic use of just the, the different character classes and, and personalities. Um, and, uh, the other one that I just find more entertaining than anything, uh, ironically is the guy that just kind of seems to, he's not excited that he's there, but he's excited that it was a murder trial and not like a normal criminal thing like an, a robbery or something he's just like it's a, it's a yeah. little more exciting right <laughs> like he's he's trying to get like some entertainment out of it or something like that um i you know it's it's, it's dark but i got something out of that number yeah, I was, you remember? I was I was trying to remember is 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 that the um is that Do the Don know? Draper juror number yeah. 12 the guy who's like a very distractible like advertising yeah, I think uh, executive yeah. yeah and he's got that charm like he's 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 the only one he's always like taking his glasses on and off smiling. yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is one of my favorite yeah, he's, he's always honestly, like he's Roger he's Roger Sterling if Roger was in uh was uh in this movie yeah yeah <laughs> Roger Sterling was in this movie. That's your number 12. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's definitely just trying to like charm the room as if he's in like a business meeting or something like that. Yeah. Time. He, and he also flip flop the, mo- the flip flops the most of like any other character. <laughs> he's like, oh, I don't know, man. Like, I'm just I keep going, you know, I don't know. Back and, you know, and yeah. um yeah yeah so but yeah it it is cool how once again like we there's so much um you know fleshed out personality to each one of these characters like there's there's the watchmaker the polite italian watchmaker guy who's who's um very cool and who is the guy who gets a great bit where he gets to correct the other guy's english he gets to correct the racist english even though very clearly english is his second language and you know there's so there's you know there's there's lots of great um little moments like that and a lot of you know sort of like righteous fury to it as well like i mean even when there were this was it's pretty ahead of its time in terms of you know trying to get people off of um death row but like even i think people talk about the most sort of like questionable piece of evidence they bring up is the whole idea about like the the memory that like the guy yeah um uh how could he not have remembered the fact that he went and saw a movie and who was in the movie and they bring up well you know it was he had to come back and see his father stabbed and the police were taking his this testimony and it you know it might have been under duress and shock and and who knows and you know like you can hardly remember the movie you saw last week not under shock and for anyone who like follows up with like people trying to get people off death penalty cases and stuff um you know 
false confessions due to like interrogation tactics and shock is like so horribly common. It's insane. And that like wouldn't have been mainstream knowledge at, at this point that this film came out. But like mm. it's still addressed in here. So, you know, like Lumet, as always, I mean, even with Dog Day Afternoon and other films that we've talked about of his, like he was he was very, very ahead of the curve on, you know, putting in all of these social and sort of political forces uh, into the periphery of his film, but still making it like a very thrilling, like character engagement moment to moment kind of thing where you're totally engrossed by the psychology of these characters and how they fight among one another, how they move within the space of the room and everything like yeah, that. Yeah, like uh, the just speaking of the movement, I like when they start to try to demonstrate like timed events such as when uh Fonda yeah, gets that's up a great and, moment like limps over to one side of the room and back to see if the timing of 15 seconds would be accurate um then eventually he and gets that, a that's diagram. almost exciting like the tracking yeah. shot of like of, of him being like all right you you set your watch and there's like a close-up on the sweaty guy's face as he's you know the nerdy guy he's got his watch ready to go he's like okay i'm, I'm waiting for it to hit exactly the minute right and, and then, yeah. you know, then we follow him for a minute in real time as he replicates this walk to prove that the guy could not have made it to the door to see the kid. Mm hmm. Yeah. And it, it just uh, and I like that he locks it in too. like it. There's no cuts away from Fonda slowly limping from one side of the room to the next. He just you, mm -hmm. you're sitting in the process. And then I think it might be before or after. I can't remember. But then he takes out like a diagram of the entire layout of the apartment <laughs> right. and starts pointing out like where people would be running and, and all of that. So like. I don't know if you'd call them action beats, but I guess just because most of it is people arguing with each other, they they feel kind of exciting in that way. Yeah, I mean, Lamette is really, Lamette's such a brilliant director mm -hmm. in that he really understands setting in a way that's really unique. He understands setting and he understands putting people in a pressure cooker in a room together and following them and seeing their body language, right? One of the more infamous shots for me and not the right thing, sorry, in the dog afternoon is when Sheena realizes the police is watching and he kind of like drops on the on the on the railing, like kind of squats, like oh shit. Yeah. Mm. Not even oh shit, but more like but more like oh fuck. <laughs> We're done. Um yeah. and yeah, and he does that several times here in um in 12 Angry Men, right? In a much different sense, in a much more of a formal sense, in a much more of a minimalistic sense. Mm -hmm. But it's still, yeah. you still have a lot of shots of like pure body language and pure angst. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's fantastic. It's like the first, well, yeah, and, and, uh, uh, like even the establishing shot when, when we were talking about how it fades from the kid's face into the room. Uh, there's a long shot of just every single character being introduced and talking to one another. And it's kind of like your first taste of their, their personalities, but um, it's just so fluid and smooth the way he goes all the way around the room to introduce you to everybody. It's just, he's uh, amazing at translating information with the camera. Yeah. Well, yeah. and, and, yeah. and despite once again, being restricted to this minimal location, like it's, it's, it's very exciting. And a huge part of that is one Lumet, a huge rehearsal guy. So apparently okay, he would yeah. have these guys rehearse for hours and hours and hours just to get them frustrated at each other in a cramped room as like real people. <laughs> and then he'd be like, okay, now we're shooting. With no air um, conditioning but there's also, well. 
Yeah. And there's also <laughs> this amazing technique that he does in this that I think is like integral to the whole thing, which is his 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 gradual shifting of um, eye lines and lenses, which is mm -hmm. like the, the really huge thing that a lot of people have talked about this before because it's like such a famous little bit of, um, you know, like the form matching the content, which is. Um, he starts the film with a lot of wide angle lenses and basically like higher angle shots, which yeah. generates a lot of depth of, 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 uh, of focus and a lot of, um, a lot of space and room for the characters. And then over the course of the film, by the end of the film, he's basically exclusively shooting in lower angle framing on telephoto lens, which totally squeezes and constricts that information. So all of a sudden, all of these characters feel, even though he doesn't have to go to an insane close up of their face to do it, it feels like the camera and the framing and everything has just gotten tighter and they've gotten closer together and it's becoming yeah. more unbearable. And this shit, this shift happens very naturally and gradually over the course of the film. And it's just, it's one of the many techniques that again, visually that he deploys that just, you know, it, it make this just slightly more impactful than it should, because a movie that is as again, restricted as this should not be as, um, exciting as this is. And <laughs> yeah. honestly, in, 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 in some cases as, as simple as it is, like when we finally get to like the big dramatic sort of climactic moments and it literally is just the rest of the room being like, well, this guy is clearly th the only people who are saying not guilty or who are saying guilty anymore are the people who are very clearly personally prejudiced. Because as soon as they won yeah. the analytical guy over with the glasses story where they go, well, the witness had impressions on her nose, which means that she wears glasses. And, you know, she got up in the middle mm -hmm. of the night. She definitely didn't put her glasses on. The guy with glasses will tell you, you don't sleep with your fucking glasses on. So she probably saw a blur and just assumed that it was who the other witness identified. So you have two witnesses then you know, uh, who, who can't necessarily be trusted or at least their testimony should have a slight bit of doubt to them. Yeah. Um, so as soon as they, they, they lose the, the facts guy and the uh, racist guy just defeats himself essentially. Like he gets, yeah. To such a just ramp like ranting. Yeah. People, I love the shot. Like after he goes through this, you know, big five minute bigoted rant, um, every single character just turns away. So you have this wide shot of the entire room and every single person is facing away from the table except for the racist guy. And he just walks over to a corner and shamefully just puts his head down and, and kind of like in that sense, that's when he's defeated because when the one guy, it might be Fonda, walks over to him to get the uh, the new verdict or whatever, he just kind of shakes his head like, yeah, he's he's not guilty. I've, I've completely defeated myself here and everyone has been exposed to who I really yeah. am. Well, he's literally screaming about how like, you know, like the, the, the kid comes from a- You can't from a, trust these people. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he even he does was, the he whole, was, like, he, he was like something gets killed ones. and they don't care. They have no feelings. Right. You know? yeah. Yeah. It's like, I know a few good like ones, Christ. but the most of them, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He even pulls that line. <laughs> yeah. He literally uh, says that, uh, you know, they got some nice qualities. I know a nice couple, yeah. you know, one of them, but they're, but overall <laughs> they're, they're dangerous. Honestly, it goes back to this idea of like these things have been happening for so long long right like i mean mm -hmm. obviously yeah. like i don't know 97 is not, not that long but we think of these things as just like um sometimes like in the moment where it's kind of like oh i mean like people have been talking like this for a while now right this like some people are some of them are good but not all of them and so i think um 
Yeah, yeah, and and eventually, yeah, I love when they yeah. turn the back. It's a very moving, it's a very moving and revealing scene um, about the politics of the movie as well, right? It is, yeah, yeah it, it is movie. Movie really understands what it is and the character mm-hmm. that you ought to, that it has and that the people in the movie has, right? It understands what the right side is yeah. and what um, the right side isn't is, but it's still a movie. It's not heavy handed. It doesn't play its hand ever. It lets it play, play but it really does understand innately um, the, the, the idea of it and, you know, who is in the right and who's in the wrong and who's well, yeah. And, and in that moment specifically, it's this idea of, you know, Henry Fond before everyone was kind of indifferent and not treating this as a serious thing. Like it was people not being part of the community process of mm-hmm. being aware and being active in, you know, uh, and, at that point in in the film, like everyone is active, like everyone yeah. is paying attention to what this guy is saying. And it's like, wow, if we actually paid attention to what was being said behind, you know, behind the lines of what was going on with the prosecution and like what was actually being done here. This is very clearly just, you know, a, a racist storm to kill this kid in a way, mm-hmm. because if you were to break this down you know, as they have seriously, it's like, yeah, it doesn't add up like at all. So as a result, you know, at that point you have, and so I like that it's this big wide shot where all of the characters are blocked to have like this sort of a collective decision that everyone is going to stop listening to this guy. And, you know, and yeah, so it it is, it is like, it's a, you know, it it is, it is kind of like an obvious moment, but it is a moment that I think is earned and I think it's well done. And it works really, really well when they have that moment and there's literally one guy left, like literally the guy who is clearly projecting his own issues with his own son and wants to punish his own son and wants to use those feelings as a reason that, you know, this kid needs to be guilty. Mm -hmm. And they literally just let him also go on like an insane rant until, you know, he like throws this picture of his son down and he realizes like what it is that he's doing because his, his speech is actually just like nonsense arguments. Like he's very just stubbornly trying to maintain positions that are no longer factual. Well, that's the thing. He's kind of like repeating all of the evidence that we've already seen and essentially debunked, at least in the sense that we, you could say he's outright a guilty person. Um, so, so as he's going on this ramble, it already feels like, well, we've already gone through all this, man. You're just kind of sticking to your guns for no real reason at this point. Um, and then, yeah, when the sun thing is exposed, uh, it's, it's pretty sad, honestly. Uh, and, and I do like that the movie, um, with using Fonda kind of has still sympathy for all of these, these characters that like clearly some of them were just, it seemed like wanted to go on with their day and weren't thinking much of it until they were forced to, which is a good thing. And then the others really had more like deep seated issues that uh, were directly relating to their decisions in the case. Um, And I do like that they still have a little bit of sympathy for the guy that uh, was clearly going through something really deep and dark with his, with his son, uh, just with Fonda kind of putting the code over him to kind of console him. Like, Hey, uh, you still made the right decision of saying, you know, not guilty. Um, and even though you did something that was pretty heinous, uh, uh, throughout the day, you know, I can kind of understand where you're 
coming from in some sense. I, I, I still see you as a human being. Uh, the well, racist his, guy doesn't his, get much his, of that, but his whole argument, deserve, right, yeah. is to is is like a principled one. It's a, it is like right. you should not be applying your own personal thing because again, Fonda even says it himself many times throughout the film, which I think is smart. Uh, which is that you know he's like I don't know that he's right you know one hundred percent not guilty, but it's possible. And that's it. You know, it's just like that. That's the that is the whole point of anything. And they and they go, you know, you can suppose anything, but it's like, what is a, you know, a collective society that doesn't, you know, sort of like obey this process in a way, you know, that's 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 one that is going to just kill people for absolutely no reason. Mm -hmm. And that is the thing that is obviously like, you know, uh, very um upsetting to him it's not necessarily determining specific guilt innocence of this case it's something bigger it is you know uh you know uh how can you put this like certain systemic judgment on one of you uh you know without actually giving it you know some sort of uh thought as a a group you know and it's an allegory it's not only, as you said, it's not only just about the case, it's an allegory for just American life in general, right? Like this yeah. idea of like, how can you really judge people without understanding these are their circumstances of this? Right, exactly. You know? like, I, I love, I, you, you made up a really good point. You said a really good point. I love when Fonda keeps saying like, look, I don't know, he could be, but like, look, let's actually, actually talk about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're about to send you a know? kid like, to it, the it, chair. <laughs> Yeah, we're about to send a kid to his death. So let's actually think about this for a second. You know what I mean? And like, mm-hmm. I think understands that people, but also that they deserve as much discussion and empathy, resources as possible to help them, not not help them succeed, but help them kind of sort of not be in prison, if you will. <laughs> like, so yeah, um, yeah no, it, it's a it's a it's a it's a movie that has more depth than you would think just judging from it on face value as i keep watching the movie more and more i think i was like my my fifth watch um Mm. i keep realizing wow this is just an allegory for a lot of different things and a lot of larger uh look at uh at humanity and the way it works yeah yeah yeah. and i also love the, the small detail of them just being these like even to themselves the characters they they are just kind of uh nameless personalities and numbers in a way mm-hmm. until the very end when Fonda introduces himself to the old man and they kind of exchange like a, a moment of real humanity where they just see them as the person they are instead of just that mm-hmm. juror number that they're trying to convince. Um, so I, I really enjoyed that ending note as well. Um, and just once again, to accent on the kind of the sadness of that last juror that hung on until the end, just him like slowly walking down the steps with his head down, just just c- completely defeated. Um, and, you know, now now we know the knowledge of like just what he is, his relationship with his son and all of that. So, yeah, there is some really some really great final images that all happen in yeah. one shot, too, which is impressive. Yeah, no, those the, those moments like those ones, like th- those very human moments of doubt and realization that a yeah. lot of time he captures in these really, you know, beautiful close up frames of their faces as they realize yeah. them like this. It's the most important stuff because it literally is like you have this, you know, this unthinking, brutal system at the start of it that totally uncaring and without a thought in the world was going to kill this kid. And by the end, you have all of these characters 
who admit with serious thought and consideration that they are fallible and that that is, I think, ultimately what it wants to do. You should not assume that you are a higher per- higher than the person that, that you are judging, that you are, you know, just as capable of being flawed and and lower, which the camera literally over the course of the film gets lower. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it's, you know, like it, it's very um, well developed in that way. And if we are pivoting, I think, towards reductive rating around which you've been on before, Jason, but we uh, remove all the words and all the nuance and give the film a rating between uh, one and five. But it's also become final final statements or any scenes or specific lines. And there is a lot of lines in this film that we can't get yeah. to. Like it is like a word a minute kind of thing that I, <laughs> I couldn't take notes fast enough. So if there's any lines we didn't get that you want to bring up at the end, this is definitely um where we're going to do that. But for me, for me, this is still uh, I, I've watched this quite a few times and it, it it does just barely dodge the five for me. It's the Jamie four for me. It's a very high yeah. four. Uh, I do yeah. think that for all the um, difficult ideas that it raises in its subject matter, which I think it does really, really well. Every time I get to the ending, I do feel it's a little bit pat and optimistic and not entirely in a bad way, just in kind of a quick way for me. Um, and it's really the only knock I could possibly give. I think this is like as well directed and acted of a movie as you could possibly, um, get. There just is a a small element to me on rewatches that I think a lot of people do really like about the film that definitely always sits with me a little bit, which is that, cause it's about many, many other things, but it's partially about the desire that we also see a lot of online. Jason, you've probably seen this about like wanting to own your opponent so bad. They see the error of their ways and as we've seen with like you know sort of mob mentality and like hardcore racists and various other things you know they're not necessarily defeated by like bursts of logical debate uh in a lot of ways like you know i could feel aaron sorkin being born in that moment where he's like he's an ignorant slob that don't even speak good english and he's like uh doesn't speak good english sir (laughs) yeah uh you know so there's there's a couple things like that that for me are just uh, you it know, very much definitely like Jeff Daniels, uh, famous the newsroom. The, oh, there's a little, bit. yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I feel what you're saying. I, I really enjoy it, but I get what you're saying. Now, I think yeah. that this is like a really amazing version of that. I don't yeah. think it's at all like I think this is an incredible film once again. Uh, and and I do honestly like living briefly in this world where like that's a true thing that could happen. That you just you show someone they're you know that they're wrong and they reverse their decisions and you know it's something that we should aspire to for sure. And it's really the only slight misstep for me. And like what otherwise is again an incredibly directed, uh, perfectly acted. Uh, film and again a testament to what an amazing craftsman can do under restrictions and limitations of a story such as this like this thing moves and the battles of wit and psychology and crazy and ideology like it's all as thrilling as could be um, under these circumstances and this is definitely the best film anyone will ever force you to watch in uh, (laughs) city no 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 there is an academic quality to this movie and um, I totally agree with both of, you, both of y'all said. It's like there are things in this movie that are replicated by other people, but in like the worst quality. Yeah. Ever. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. like, it's definitely influenced. You can tell it's definitely influenced a lot of like people that I'm like, oh my God, I, I, I can't stand this writer or, or I can't stand this director. <laughs> um, but because Lamette has such a, a innate way of, of viewing humanity and viewing people and viewing the way people interact with each other, and viewing the way personal feelings to get in the way of, of uh, what people think and, and um, 
Met oh and every single Met movie as well. There's always something I think that goes against goes against the grain of another movie, right? So Network, for example, sees face Faye Dunaway as like the only woman executive, but also views her as this soulless woman, which she is, right? Um, you know, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, you know, Dog Day Afternoon kind of. Yes, you know, it sees Sonny as a flawed person, but it also sees him as a violent person as well, right? It does not really, if it doesn't, it gives him less, it does give him grace, but it gives him yeah. less like of a positive note than I think people view. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, mm-hmm. um, even Lee J. Cobb in this, who's, I mean, I think Lee J. Cobb is really fantastic in this. It might be my favorite performance in this. Um, uh, he just brings so much to that last scene. It, 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 that scene should have got him like nominated or, or you know, yeah. or, or, or one of the award just for that one scene. Seriously. I mean like, you know, one scene winners are, are, are don't happen a lot, but that's, that's one of them for me. It's, it's a f- phenomenal, powerful performance. I'm just so raw. And I think, yeah. Yeah. And I, I think putting that jacket on him goes against what you would usually see in the movies, right? Like shunning this man who has said, uh, who, who has used, his personal relationship with his son as a ethos in this case still uh, gives gives him some grace, and I think, yeah, and I think I think it's a another allegory for you still need to be able to empathize with the people you disagree with mm-hmm. in order to win them over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Order to win them over, and you see, yeah, and you see that in, in real life, and I don't think enough people know how to do that anymore. Um, I really do. Oh so. yeah. So, so for you, yeah, is, is yeah, this, yeah. Uh, is, is, yeah. is this the five Jason? I have it on five of my letterbox and I'll keep it at five. Um, I, I oh, agree. Nice. I definitely, yeah, I definitely agree with y'all that. Yeah. I definitely agree with you guys that the people who have followed this movie since and used kind of the evil <laughs> movie have done it in the, in the worst way possible. <laughs> but I think when someone connects on something, someone connects on something, right? I think for Wall Street, for example, people, people have seen them, for, for example, people have seen a movie like that and have kind of tried to use that in the way in its satire and to their example and have failed miserably at it. Adam McKay, for example. Um, <laughs> but The Wolf of Wall Street is still amazing. And I, I say I feel the same way about 12 Angry Men. And so uh, five for me. Nice. Yeah, uh, I, I'll uh, we should probably get to Oxbow, so I'll keep it short. But I, I'm uh, in the high four. I really do think one of these days it could get to the five. I I guess with me a lot of the time with film, if it's, if it's heavy on the dialogue, um, normally that would stop me, but I mean, Sydney just has such a control over the camera and the way that he does all these close-ups at, at really great moments, emphasizing certain characteristics and arguments and all of that. I, I mean, it's fantastic. I really don't even know what I have to say, uh, against it. I don't even really mind the, the kind of clean ending just cause I think it's, you know, it's a, a group of men kind of finally coming together to see uh, something larger than themselves. Uh, a lot of the beginning was them just kind of selfishly neglecting the case. And I think it took, it, it's just nice to see that they took it seriously, that one person could convince them to maybe take this seriously because we are literally putting an 18 year old's life on the line. Um, and, and they, so have, I, and they became like active participants in their community, right. Versus yeah. being like, you know, only interested Which, in getting to the Yankees game on time. Right, exactly. Right, which is why, again, I really like that that last uh, 
uh, little thing with with Fonda putting the coat over the last juror who's kind of lost this relationship with his son, just saying like, hey, you did the wrong thing today, but I understand at least somewhat of where you're coming from. It, it, was, it still came from a very human place. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think this is just a, a beautiful film. So uh, four out of five for now, but it could, it could get there one day. It is absolutely a classic. Um, if, if I may, you know, what's interesting is network, which is also a heavy dialogue movie is not a five for me. Network mm. is very heavy dialogue. I think it was detriment and that network is a three and a half for my litter box. So like, mm. I, I totally understand what y'all are saying. Like network for me is a, a, a three and a half because, you know, like you talk about heavy dialogue, I don't love network. And so I, I appreciate it, but don't love it. So mine yeah. is like three and a half, but for this one, yeah, it yeah I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat with you on uh network. Um, but, uh, yeah. Also, Jamie, you know me. I just love a miserable ending. It, this ending is too happy, which <laughs> yeah. is why I'm uh, really stoked. Stoke that's a great transition. Yeah. It's a good segue, I think. Yo, we're gonna we're, that's God, gonna wrap that's gonna wrap it up for uh, Twelve Angry Men from 1957. We're gonna be right back, and you should stick around because we're gonna get same premise, incredibly grim. Uh, we're gonna be talking about the 1943 film, The Oxbow Incident. Stick around. Hang him, any man's business. It's around. That's just a brief idea of what you'll find on the Oxbow Incident. We at the studio think it's one of the most daring and unusual pictures ever made, jammed with emotional and dramatic impact from the start to the amazing climax. When you see it, we believe you'll agree. Right, we are back and we are talking The Oxbow Incident, the 1943 American Western directed by one William A. Wellman and based on the 1940 novel of the same name by Walt Van Tilburg Clark, a novelist based out of Nevada, where the uh, events of the film are set and also adapted uh, by Lamar Trotty, who I learned on this watch, who actually wrote John Ford's Young Mr. Lincoln, which actually shares a little bit of um, uh, sort of a principles to it. Young Mr. Lincoln probably belongs more in the 12 Angry Men catalog than this because uh, this mm. is uh, something else and, and 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 a huge reason for that is William A. Wellman who's a director we, we haven't talked about on the show but he's a uh, director from Massachusetts who was a uh, a self-described delinquent boy who grew up mostly stealing cars and working in a lumberyard and like playing hockey uh, before he was eventually drafted into World War One, where he was a frontline fighter pilot who saw real action and reportedly shot down at least eight other aircrafts, uh, which very famously inspired his film uh, Wings from 1927, which is probably one of the most famous and earliest and most immersive examples of dogfighting on screen. He even taught Buddy Rogers how to fly and invented cameras to shoot in real biplanes. He's the uh, so this man was Tom like, Cruise, baby. 100 years he beat <laughs> Tom Cruise to the punch in filming in real planes, and uh, he would eventually awesome. go on to work in all kinds of genres, including comedies, noirs, dramas. He did the original Stars Born, which many people don't know. Um, oh, and wow. he also he also did uh, uh, his big breakthrough was the pre-code gangster film from Warner Brothers called The Public Enemy starring James Cagney, which is probably the one most people are familiar with. It's a really dark and mean and shocking piece of um, crime cinema about a poor kid who gets corrupted into a full blown psychopath. Uh, and it very famously inspired a lot of Martin Scorsese's gangster films. And 
It's a very expressively shot with incredible passages of mood. There's like this amazing shootout in it that takes place inside a building while the camera remains outside in the rain, like listening to the shooting and the screaming and stuff. And it has one of the darkest endings you'll ever see in one of those films. And it came out in 1931. (laughs) Um, So if you were wondering, why does this Western have a bit of a different vibe to it? Uh, That is why William A. Wellman. So uh, this film, again, based on a, the 1940 novel for anyone unfamiliar with kind of like the loose story, it follows um, Gil Carter played once again by Henry Fonda, juror number eight from um, 12 angry men uh, as part of a, a, cowboy troop that um wanders into i believe it is uh what is it called uh bridger's pass i want to say is is that what it's called or yeah so yeah oh bridger bridger's wells that's right nevada yeah and they come into town and they come into town just in time to hear news that a local rancher has been murdered and his cattle has been stolen and you know they are kind of presumed a little bit to maybe be suspicious fellows because they are strangers who have just come into town but immediately all of the townspeople and the two cowboys and a few other characters form a posse to go and hunt down whoever it is has killed this local rancher and 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 stolen his his cattle and the most interesting thing about this film is that that's it that's the film yeah. uh, it's 70 it's 75 minutes uh it is it is it really does kind of give you with a little a, there's a little bit of whiplash to it and how it starts as a classical western genre film for probably about like 20 minutes or so and then you yeah. think it's going to you know become a little bit more epic in scope and by the time you get an hour into the film you're like oh wait no this is it this is the whole movie we're just going to watch these guys consider killing some innocent dudes and then spoiler alert which you know uh, doing it and <laughs> And it's it's so fascinating to me in that way. When the first time I watched it, I was totally floored by it. It it feels like the kind of um, thing that you would hear a character's talking about as a story that like off screen at the beginning of another Western. Like it's Mm -hmm. like it it feels like sort of like a setup. It feels like a simple sort of like, you know, sort of like moral tale that people are telling but that has been like adapted to feature length where you're just like forced to sit in the misery and the fatalism of what these characters Mm -hmm. decide to do yeah um but like 12 angry men's sort of examination on one you have like the death penalty the justice system the masculine social pressures towards violence uh you know you you have you have all of those same elements going on here and also once again a bunch of men you know deliberating um on the fact that are we going to really kill this person is this the right thing to do is you know like it's a very bleak examination um in that way and it sits you in the process once again of their decision making and characters once again drawn with a a complex range of emotion and opinion on the dreadful act of violence that they can feel themselves all being swept up into in uh really interesting ways uh especially to like you know the amount of like faulty information and clashing right. personalities and sort of just the general air of hostility and impatience and anger that yeah, all of the these impatience. characters feel because it's such a personal crime to them right yeah the impatience seems like it's really accented like i think the first thing you're introduced when to when you know the, this whole thing really begins because they they go into the bar and they kind of have like a very classic western thing where you know whiskey is the only thing that we got at this bar and they start taking shots and they he gets into a little bit of a scuffle and whatever 
Um, but yeah. when the guy reports what has happened to, uh, is it a, it's a rancher, right? Is that who was killed, uh, supposedly killed? Yeah, Larry Kincaid, one of the local ranchers. Right, right. And yeah. he just kind of like rushes in and and right away it gives this this feeling of just kind of uh, like rushing to conclusions and and kind of like just this bloodthirst that happens right away with with all of the people. They kind of assume um, that they can take all of these people and with 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 a right mind go about uh enacting justice and it, it just seems from the Ooh. very get-go the way that people are talking to each other the way that people are talking about the case itself um it just seems like no one's at a real level head and uh that they're really just looking to kind of like exercise the power that they've been given um they even kind of accent a few things with uh one of the deputies saying he's going to deputize all of the people so that they can legally kill the people when they find them. Um, so right. it's just these like really stupid gray lines that they're, that they're, um, that they're dealing with here where it's like, well, we know it's wrong, but now we've made it legal. So it, it doesn't really matter anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, really, really, really love this movie. This is, uh, I, I have not seen this one until Josh, you brought it to me. And then this is now my second time seeing it. Last night I screened, I, this morning rather, I screened it. So this is my second time of seeing it. And I think, to your point, the man just entered, it, it started making jokes about, um, about women and it's, it's, it's a regular thing. And then uh, the man was in and announced that someone's been murdered. I think what you're seeing is in this town, people are scared. They're looking for... Uh, justice in a way that they're not really looking for justice, but rather looking for retribution and mm -hmm. rather, I think looking for right. order, right. This idea of like law and order. And so that's why they're, you know, they're immediately forming a posse, right. As, as opposed to like letting things play out, right. You have a town that's in fear. So I think that's also another idea of, of what we're doing with mm -hmm. uh, in this movie is not really just jurors, but more so kind of a look at a town and look at the, the uh, organization or lack thereof or kind of the politics of this town. Right. So this, this, mm -hmm. this one's really, really, really interesting to me. Yeah. And really the person that has to make all of the argumentations are the, is the one guy that is going to, well, there's three that are going to be uh, possibly hanged, but one of them seems to be the guy that they're really having the arguments with about like what, what the evidence is that they have against them. Uh, the, the evidence that they have to say that they're innocent yeah, it, it seems instead of, you know, them as a group talking about it, it's more like just this giant group of people up against the people that will be the ones killed, which I find a, an interesting difference in dynamics there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I like the, I also the very think it's way less. Um, I also think it's way less righteous and way. Um, yeah, way, way less righteous and way more intending to teach and much more of like okay, you're waiting for this grim thing to happen. Yeah. I never once, right, whereas 12 Angry Run has this mood of like, okay, Jordan Ray is going to try to convince you. This is very much just like, we are waiting for a thing to happen. Yeah, yeah. The whole movie, true. it kind of feels like, okay, we're looking up to this thing that's about to just go down. And this is just a detail, but this thing's definitely going to go down. You kind of just <laughs> feel that way. And so it, it's, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Spoiler. There is yeah, no, like a yeah, tone right. that 
that really as the film goes on, like you want to have a little bit of hope that, you know, it's it's going to be this thing where like they learn their ways of the mob mentality and 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 move on with their lives and they barely get away. But they're they they don't get hanged. But as the film goes, it just gets deeper and deeper into this like dark atmosphere and this this this, you know, just mob mentality uh, to the point where, yeah, it starts to feel really hopeless Um even as the guy is, you know, writing the letter to his family as he's trying to uh, just come up with with, with certain um, argumentations for why he has the things that he has that they think makes him guilty. Like the uh, uh, I think there's a, a certain um, a certain equipment that he got from the rancher and they think he must have stolen it after he was killed. But regardless, it just it, it feels as the film goes on, it just it, you get deeper and deeper into this like hopelessness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, one of my favorite uh, sort of tricks that it plays on you a little bit is that, again, it starts out in like two men riding into town and bar fights and, yeah. you know, talking about women. And then, yeah, this kid comes in and says that someone's been killed. And it's not something you wouldn't see in another Western or anything, but no. there is like a uh, an intensity to it because like there's a vivid description of it. They say like he was point blank, like executed in the head and, you know, like mm-hmm. the bullet came through and, you know, like they're talking about it very gruesomely. And the sheriff happens to be out of town and he tapped a very violent deputy uh, to be, uh, you know, kind of his his replacement who, you know, then the the sort of unhinged lynch mob um, who wants to immediately get revenge uh, for this, uh, you know, this short, dark Irishman who used to sing a lot. And he was a fine God fearing man. And they're, they're using their their memories of this guy to fuel a very intense bloodthirst that they clearly have yeah. and a right. They, I like Jason's point that it the movie doesn't feel more righteous, but the characters still think that they are being righteous. And the yeah, movie just sure. depicts that righteousness and that assumption of righteousness as something very ugly when it's not tied to, you know, uh, you know, some sort of standard of some kind when it's just like, no, 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 we don't need to follow all the rules. Let's just get all the boys together. We'll all get on horses. We'll all follow these guys and we'll all string them up. Yep. Done day. And they even have a Justice. dude who comes in that I fucking love uh, the, the major Tetley character. Um, because he rides into town and he's the one who gives them the information that, you know, uh, he actually saw three men uh, riding up on the high up pass and they were riding with uh, cattle with Kincaid's brand. So he goes, these guys very clearly, you know, there's a dead guy. They have his cows. So, you know, let's go get those guys kind of deal. But I love that uh, Henry Fonda's character here, Gil Carter, He's very interesting because unlike in 12 Angry Men, where once again, he's very sort of sensitive and he's very thoughtful. And, you know, in this, he's a little bit rougher Um, and he's not necessarily like a a bad person or anything. He's someone who knows what he's doing or what's happening is wrong. And he definitely speaks up more than other characters do. But unlike uh, juror number eight, who like takes control of the room. And, you know, actually starts, you know, weaponizing discussion and weaponizing psychology and doing all of these things. Gil Carter feels completely, um, you know, powerless against this force that is forming. And he does a couple things like he goes to the judge and he says, look, we got to tell these guys to bring them back, give them a trial, come to the judge, do these things. But, you know, the, the the sort of the intensity of the collective overpowering, I think, is really palpably felt. Uh, especially in these early goings on. And then it takes on a whole new quality where, where up until the point 
where they finally leave town and they ride out as a posse and everything. You know, everything has been not dissimilar from a Western drama that you've seen before, but then it switches. And those like dark scenes where they're riding through the mountain pass and, yeah. you know, like the map paintings behind them and the way the darkness envelopes them. And even like the, the scary moment where they they see a a, 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 a a horse carriage like riding by them and they all just start like shooting at it and getting mm. into a fight with it, even though it was like very clearly, you know, just like a normal cart riding by. Like, again, these sort of like mundane domestic things now have violence to them because of this state of mind that they're in. But the sets are what blow me away. This is yeah. once again... Or uh, this is one of the largest sets ever constructed at Fox Studios. Um, it oh. was 26,000 square feet using tons of reused materials and sets from previous films. Um, and this whole thing was built. It's incredible. And it looks it's it almost looks like a gothic horror set. Like I, I thought yeah. a little bit about like the early scenes from uh, Edgar G. Almer's The Black Cat when they're mm-hmm. like riding and it's like thundery and they're heading towards the castle and stuff like also, that's what this stuff kind of looks like. And I think it totally takes on a different vibe when it switches. I also thought of, uh, oddly enough, like, um, th- that, that crossroads section in Faust when it's like all of those really skinny trees that just kind of have these yeah. like creepy branches. Uh, cause they have that one shot. I think it's my, might be my favorite shot in the whole movie um, where they it's right when they're discussing like splitting up to go find the group of of people uh, and they are under this this tree and it's this big wide shot and it's just very like dead looking mm-hmm. black tree and they all separate and go away from it but it just feels just it, it feels right out of a horror movie it really does um, and mm. I just also like the idea of like the tree overlooming them that leads to the images we'll get to later when we deal with the hanging and all of that as well. So, um, yeah, yeah really, really cool. Imagery. Yeah. Really, really fatalistic imagery like that, including one of my favorite examples is how many and, and on rewatches, you'll definitely see it, but there are so many shots that I didn't even realize until the second and third time I watched that, like the nooses can be seen hanging in the background off the tree mm-hmm. for like the majority wow. of the film. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's fucking crazy. Mean, meanwhile, it drops a lot of music and it scores a lot of it to sounds of just like horses and leather straps and hoof steps and the whiskey bottles swishing and like the fire and the lamps and everything like the long, unbearable existential weight is, you know, what is the focus of this film while you're sitting there. And I mean, as as Jason was putting it, like the grim anticipation of what is going to come because, you know, you you are watching this thing that you know the the machine has already been churning like the, the the train wheels can't be stopped on this thing right from the beginning of the film and it's just really painful to watch these characters very miserably try to resist it and yeah everything they try to do yeah. just just doesn't work for them it's 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 hard to watch sometimes yeah i like the way um just speaking on the music like the way that they open it up with a very classical kind of orchestral uh you know big strings and 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 big band kind of vibe uh and they end Mm -hmm. with that as well but you're right like in the middle there's almost nothing maybe just when they're riding to the destination and have all those desert shots there might be something but a lot of it is just this uh like the the I think he's a, a reli- an older religious man that goes along with them, and he's also trying to make it so that they have a, a trial. And he does a lot of just like singing old hymns to them, and which creates a very yeah. kind of you know it, it's it's creepy in a way, but he's trying to calm them, I guess, through uh, 
uh, religion and belief. So, but but it it still just adds to this like <laughs> death is coming kind of vibe. Yeah, yeah. I think too. What's um, yeah. I mean, what's really interesting is they find the uh, people that they think that they're looking for in the middle, right? And then mm-hmm. there's still more of a debate going on afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, or and then and then and then a, a, a set piece of 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 the uh, Mexican who's who's goes by Juan uh, a little a little later. But also, I think too. As you, as you talked about, there are less people or there are more people in this one that are kind of like, should we really be doing this but feel powerless against this mob? Whereas in the movie we watched in, in before, Talk Every Men, there's Henry Fonda like trying to convince people. And so I think yeah. you have this idea of kind of, as you talked about, the noose of just let's just how that's going on. Mm-hmm. You know, and like I, I, I wonder, did did y'all think that this was a little simplistic in its details? Because this is really just about this. Did you think that this movie yeah. needed a little bit more, not discussion, but a little bit more details in in the story? I almost feel like the lack of details that the people have, like the group that are trying to hang these the, these three people, the lack of details that they have, mm-hmm. make it more. So like, I th- I think it it fuels kind of their um their hastiness to to do it. It's it's like they have a lack of information, but we've seen them kind of build this this bloodthirst and almost this image of the people that shot their friend. Um, and so I think that's mm-hmm. where the drive is because like I I think uh, it would you know more inform- more of a philosophical discussion like Twelve Angry Men would definitely be interesting. Um, but I, I like that it's more focused on just like their their pure almost rage. Their it's kind of like their their blinded rage at the fact that their friend has been killed and now they're gonna kill these innocent people. But yeah, I, yeah, I definitely I mean, see your point. I, I, I definitely yeah, because I, I know what you mean. Like there's there is in comparison to Twelve Angry Men, like definitely a lot less speechifying and a lot less sort of like you know like dig- discussion. Yeah, and like dignified yeah. calls just, for like we need to do just, something just right here. Is, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for yeah sure. exactly, exactly. You're kind of caught it, it's so quick and it's so minimalist that I mean before you know it, there's things that, that are kind of going on. Um, <laughs> yeah. and there's also I think also um what the difference is in this movie is it has less of a of the characters and much more of a really intense and this is what makes this movie fantastic to me and, and so impressive it has such an intense viewpoint of just the situation in general as opposed to the humans and it's more mm-hmm. just like I, I guess you I guess you could say it's more cynical in its view of the humans and much more of <laughs> intense in its view of the system and it's yeah yeah, yeah. It, 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 yeah it's, it's brilliant yeah, but I but I I do like that these characters, for example, because many of them do try to form you know some levels of res- of of resistance, but it kind of takes them a while to do it, and when they and finally do few. it, it's not. 
<laughs> yeah, and, and when they finally do it, it's not enough, right? And that that's what's interesting mm-hmm. is that a lot of the detail that is put throughout, like in the early goings, like when they finally do get to the big, you know, the campfire and they find the three men and there's these beautiful images of like the campfire in distance and, you know, the them riding silently on the horses. And again, how much time is spent mm-hmm. just like actually doing the mundane thing of like riding the horse up to the guys and then like, you know, very unglamorously like threatening them with your guns and it turning into like this little silly situation where they wake up and they're confused and you know like it's yeah, like very very old man has that reaction where he like he opens up his covers sees the gun at his head and then goes okay and goes back into the covers again yeah <laughs> so there is like, yeah, some, like there's some comedy a little bit but it's more like uh it's really grounded and it's more based in just like their human experience of how scary this would be yeah, and, and I, I like how the 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 elements of, you know, sort of like the, the character detail and some of the psychological detail is relegated to moments of of, of quietness. Like one of one of the yeah. more sort of explored character dynamics, I think, is between, again, the major Tetley character, who is a guy who uh, is kind of leading the charge. And I love that they establish that he is like a Nevada guy who like married a woman in Texas and lived there for like a week before getting chased out of Texas. And now he dre- he dressed like yeah. he's like a Confederate soldier now. Um, <laughs> great and- detail, great detail. <laughs> yeah, it's a great detail. And and he brings his son. And this relationship to me is one of the most important of the film because he goes like, my son, he's a pussified well, a woman. He he needs to learn how to kill a man. Like, that's why the only reason he's brought his son with him. And there's so many great moments of his son being sensitive and actually being observational during these moments of quiet, where, again, a lot of this is like the characters are eating or drinking or talking and, and whispering to each other, not having like a big public conversation, but like sharing their doubts amongst themselves and yeah. and every but but everyone is part of this collective force that is about to do something and we get kind of just individuals reacting to that with from the inside picture of being within it being scared of it being horrified about where things are going and there's like great moments where like the sun will look at the three guys and then he'll glance over at the horses and and the nooses strung up on the trees and he'll glance back at them and he goes these guys look like normal people they look friendly enough they're just eating at the campfire he, he can't like yeah bring he can't cohere that image with the image this really grim image that they're seeing just to the side and he doesn't really understand and that obviously that tension gets threaded out throughout the entire film until it gets to the end which we'll talk about yeah. later but like you know like those elements i think are like that's where the detail of this film is it's not in characters speaking about their life experience like 12 angry men it's in just like small psychological glances like that and like the actual experience of what it would be like to be inside of a mob like this where you are yeah. just completely powerless to its control i think it's a uh, yeah really um, interesting to have the when they do start to argue with each other and like kind of make their cases it's really just the one guy the general or major that seems to be pushing and making the arguments, whereas everyone else is just kind of sitting down on the sidelines waiting for like their orders. It does seem a lot of the time that the group itself, um, even when they do the like divide the line in the sand and say like who wants to bring him to trial and who doesn't, um, it still feels like a lot of them are more pressured into it or just going along with whatever the group is doing rather than making any conscious decision themselves because there isn't like you said like with 12 angry men you know you get to hear every single person's argumentation with this it's really just like two major players that are trying to hang the people and the rest are just 
doing what they're told. Well, and, and they're, they're letting right. their feelings inform that, right? Like they're, they're, yeah. they're being like, we were personally hurt. Someone who was friends with us was brutally murdered. Right now we need to latch those feelings onto something. This guy, it, you know, he's, he has a way of verbalizing that rage into something mm-hmm. that makes sense to us. So we're going to follow that. We're going to go with that. Even when it's confronted with like very basic things, like when, when, when he goes like, you know, they, they are straight up going, okay. You guys have his cattle. What happened? And he's like, well, I bought him. And he's like, do you have a bill of sale? He's like, no. Well, he's like, well, that's just fine. It's, he's just a quick ride over. Like, we'll go talk to my wife and kids. They'll back up my story. And, you know, like mm, this kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and and they're just being like, nah, <laughs> that's not good enough. You know, we, we, we can't get a confession out of you. And we're not going to wait around for proof or evidence or witnesses. And we're just going to, you know, we, we need this catharsis, you know, like we need this. Yeah. Um, so we're going to do it. Yeah. It doesn't matter how much doubt there is. Um, they even have a, a line where it's like, I think he talks to somebody that knew the rancher and was like, would you ever know if he would give somebody a, a cattle without a bill of sale? And he's like, I hadn't known him to do that. But the guy's like, well, you've known him for six years. Do you think out of those six years, he never once did it without a bill of sale? And it kind of it kind of relates to what he's doing with 12 Angry Men, which is like, we don't know, but there's still doubt here. So maybe we shouldn't hang these people from a tree. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that, that's when Fonda comes forward and he's like, if you got any doubts, let's take him to the judge, which is like reasonable. Yeah. He's not saying let's set him free. He's saying let's just take him to the judge and we'll talk about it with like a clear head. And right. and I love that the major jumps in. He's like, this is only slightly any of your business, my friend. Remember that. And he's like, yeah. hanging yeah. is any man's business <laughs> that's around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a good line. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it yeah. is. It directly major, connects major to... The rest of society. I mean, if they allow this, which they will, um, it it it's it's not going to do anything good. It's it's only going to you know lack of faith in the system itself. Um, it isn't justice. You're killing innocent people. Like there's just there's so much to it that is obviously wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Major uh, Ted Lee has always been my favorite. Is is my favorite character in this? Um, just because I think he's the one. He's very uh, you know outwardly the villain. And also, I think unlike Lee J. Cobb, he's not, you know, given this like uh, speech that allows him some backstory and some humanity, mm-hmm. even though he's still a villain. He's just straight up just like a bad dude. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. He's just like, he's like, I'm taking my, as you said, he's like, I'm taking my son. He's kind of a pussy. Like, it's just. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're taking him to a hanging. Good Lord. Yeah, yeah. Him, so he's gotta know. <laughs> be a man. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah, be a, he's gotta know what men do. It's, it's like oh, very yeah, Frank Conway's really great. Yeah, yeah. No, this this is um like for for me, um, especially like when even just doing this back and forth stuff, like the fact mm-hmm. that it is a little bit less talky and a little bit less graceful gives it just a little bit more power to me because it's 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 about characters who don't feel like they have something to say or feel like they know how to verbalize what it is that they're feeling they're just feeling um those things and and, you know at at one point there's just palpable frustration like there's literally like the guy is like why do you keep asking me all of these questions you're not going to believe anything that i tell you and his his answer is there's truth and lies too if you get enough of them and like you know, there and and at one point too, he's like begging just to be able to like write a letter, and they almost don't um, let him do that. God, 
yeah, they yeah, almost yeah. don't let him do that. Like they they have to get the old. Once again, there's a kindly old man in here who has to like beg to like at least let the man write a letter to his family to explain what's going on. And God, the shot where they're all like laughing and cooking chicken and drinking and the camera pulls out to reveal the the nooses blowing in the wind in the background. Like there, there's a funeral the horses, vibe. Yeah to this whole thing, even in the human moments, like Jamie was talking about, like when the, the, the preacher is singing and he gives a little bit of backstory about how his brother um, was lynched. And they said, did they ever find out whether he did it or not? And they were like, we'll never know. Like yeah. that's, that's yeah. The, yeah. the whole point of this process is you will actually never know that it's to yeah. very cleanly do something horrible and not have to answer for it. Right. I um, felt like the um, idea of the noose was perfect too, by the way. Just like something so um, violent and such a backstory in, in American mm-hmm. history being um, part of this, I felt was a huge aspect of it. I mean, and then you yeah. have um, you know a young, well-spoken man, Donald Martin, and then uh, the Mexican Juan Martinez, and then an older man too. These are all three people, relatively speaking, that do not have the are not allowed yeah are not allowed the rights or not allowed the ability to defend themselves or the ability to um uh, get the benefit of the doubt as the posse that is pursuing them right and i think it's an allegory for a lot of american history and it's just it's i i, I felt like terror with like, seeing those nooses and i was like oh yeah. shit this is that's you know that's what i'm talking about like that's this is the fucking movie well, there's, there's <laughs> something like, so um like with, with hanging and i you know with other executions that has this this kind of thing too but that with hanging it seems especially in this time period it was such a like it was a public display almost like they were mm-hmm. showing it off you know uh and i think just yeah. having that those nooses hanging it's in the background I, yeah yeah absolutely absolutely so it's like yeah. just having I mean, them hanging in the background idea, the whole time mm-hmm. yeah absolutely yeah, it, it's an idea of, of yeah it's an idea of fear to show people like you know, this is make an example out of people to get people afraid, right? Right. And a lot of things, a lot of what drives this 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 movie is fear and revenge. So yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, well, and and also, once again, it just doubles how sort of like undignified and pointless mm-hmm. the whole thing is as well. The fact that yeah. you know, like they are completely emotional reason that they are tying all of these events to suit that need in order to pull it off and everyone is aware of that and unable to be like you know have a proper response to that he's like what do you tell people like they are very clearly not behaving logically how do you reverse them or defeat them with logic which is what i right. think is Something interesting is that, you know, this came out 15 years before 12 Angry Men and it came out, you know, a, a decade before High Noon, which is an, another similarly sort of uh, sort of like liberal McCarthy uh, take down. Film. It's a good film, um, yeah. but, but 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 it, it, it's very much based on this one lone principled man takes a stand and he fixes it in a way is kind of the idea. And like the, like that's what we need. And what's so interesting about this film is that not only does it not quite give you that character, it gives you a, a couple who try, but they get absolutely defeated. And it happens in one of my favorite sequences in the film. Cause once again, we've seen tons of films or tons of mo- moments where like these characters are having conversations and you can constantly see the nooses in the background. They just can't escape them. They eventually get down to a, you know, a majority decision. They're like, let's vote on it. Let's do it. And 
they have the men slowly walking over to the other side of the camp to do it. And over the course, you know, we see a couple of them go. We see the kind old man go. We see the preacher go. We, we see a lot of the characters we knew would be going. We see eventually Gil makes makes his move over because he's co- constantly been questioning this process since the very beginning, trying to get the judge involved and everything. And but but he 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 can't help but feel like he just doesn't have much power over it. I mean, they even say, will you read the letter? Like, if you read the letter, you will know this guy is innocent. And he's like, well, yeah. and he says that he won't read it. And he's like, well, will you not read it because you've made up your mind or because everyone else has and you're afraid afraid to stand up like yeah. a character in yeah. High Noon or 12 Angry Men would do. And and so he does stand up and also uh, Letterly's son makes the walk, walk over. And, you know, so you're just silently observing you know these men make the right human choice in this horrible waiting period and there's this slow pan across how outnumbered they are that is just so brutal where you get the shot of the seven of them on one side of the camp and you get like 20 some odd on the other and it's i gotta i swear it's the slowest pan you've ever seen in your life because he just wants you to be like look how outnumbered they are yeah and they've almost now established you know these these two different sides so those people that are the majority of people that are on the other side now look at this these seven i think it is as kind of like enemies they're not one with the group um they've they've almost been exposed uh which does lead to something later on between the son and the major um and i and i also like that the yeah jesus is right (laughs) Uh, i also like um that like you were saying how there wasn't like any logic that was really going to 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 twist their minds into thinking that these people were innocent or at least that they deserve a trial um so i think i like when the 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 old man starts to try to use the letter as like well it's like I think in his brain, he's saying, well, what if I can emotionally get to these people? You know, what if I can say, like, maybe you will see some humanity in this guy if you just read what he says to his his family? Um, They don't, unfortunately. (laughs) Uh, But and I also do like that it gets a little complicated with the the character um, of uh, it's the it's the main guy that they're arguing against that's going to be hanged. Oh, the one Um, the one played by uh, Donald Martin played by uh, Dana Andrews, by the way, who's a really cool. Uh, obviously, he's from the classic noir Laura, but mm-hmm. also recently saw a print uh, that Guillermo del Toro programmed of his uh, Otto Preminger film called Fallen Angels. And oh, dude, cool. he is an excellent, like sweaty, impulsive slimeball hustler in that film, which is makes it oh. really great casting in here because he's not at all like that in his performance, but he kind of has that face to him. You yeah. know, like yeah. he, he 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 has a look where you're like, yeah, this guy is very clearly a guy who would try and see how far one dollar could take him, you know? <laughs> right. um, yeah. yeah. But, and, you know, he's very well spoken and, you know, he gives a lot of really great speeches and a heartfelt, you know, like sobs and begging, you know, to to not kill him, which just go completely mm-hmm. unheard. And I also like that he he does a little bit of um he's kind of he's trying to tell the old guy it's like even though this might convince them this is this letter that i just wrote was strictly for me and my family um and i i I really still like that they're they're clashing because i believe that the old man should be doing what he's doing in some sense because i think he he even logically goes through it by saying it's like he can be mad at me all he wants but what's really going to matter is if he gets to his family again, I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially his, his reasoning for it. Um, 
but I, I just really like that that kind of that clash where it's like uh, I, I, this is for me and my family, not for these well, murderers. Yeah. 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 Like that's obviously like a really great, like personal moment of him asserting. He's like, this is like the last thing I have. This is the last bit of control or power yeah. I'm going to have over my life. Like, please respect that. Don't like, you know, show this and all, everyone's going to laugh at it or, you know, like whatever right. they're going to do to it. Like, you know, he he's trying to assert a little bit of control in a situation where once again, he is powerless. And also the film, like to contrast that with the filmmaking building out just how, again, you know, sort of sobering and miserable and fatalistic and unpitying the just entire experiences. One of my favorite moments is when they, they finally they're building up to they're going to do it. They're going to hang these guys. They've done the mm -hmm. vote. It's time to hang them. There's this incredible pan over to the beautiful daylight rays coming down, which to him, again, it's this mm -hmm. gorgeous image of the light coming through the tree. But also it's like daylight symbols. That was when we were going to wait till to we're finally going to going to hang him. And later it actually even is the same light that lights up uh, his corpse when it's finally actually hanging there. And there's this amazing wide shot of all the horses going off. And you can see that the silhouettes of the oh, three yeah. hanging corpses on the trees yeah. like that's the same light that's used to light that. So watching him look at that knowing what it is that's coming and the major forcing his son who disagreed with the decision to actually be the one to like actually hit the horse and pull the rope and, you know, do all of these, you know, uh, horrible things, which because because, again, he's like to do an unthinking, horrible act of violence like this. That's a male trait. And you got to <laughs> learn it, man. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, they're giving them time to confess and pray, which is really hard to watch. And again, you're just sitting there just forced to like in real time, just be like, yeah, they're going to do Hoping a hero comes. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. That's just <laughs> never going to like it's so it's so brutal and pointedly making you feel powerless as a viewer, as these characters are going through this. And, and then you it know, just happens you know, so fast. Like it, it, it's you, you, all of this buildup, it feels like so long and grueling. And then it's just yep. that this, the signal, the horses go off, they're hung they are hanged. They get shot. You see the silhouette and they ride off. Like it, it feels like there's so much buildup to such a, a, a quick death, uh, yep. a, a, of, of innocent people nonetheless. So yeah, it's just, <laughs> oh my God, it's brutal. Yeah, like the, the horse is taking off and the kid not hitting it right. So it doesn't actually mm -hmm. like break his neck and they have to like shoot the guy on the thing. But you don't see any of this, too. It's done in this very um, uh, this very intentionally composed yeah. uh, image where you're totally focused on like the kid who's doing it and then the horses and then the guy who's shooting. And it it, it, it pans just enough so that you don't actually ever see them you just see them sort of like reflected on the land and everything which gives it this kind of elemental quality to it too it's really you beautiful have the guy singing the hymns too so it kind of comes yes. back like before it was almost like something that was comforting or at least trying to be and then it turns into something that's just you know it's it's saying goodbye i guess it's it's yeah, praying to god mournful. that they get to heaven or whatever they they believe so yeah it's yeah exactly mournful right yeah yeah yeah, like that, that whole yeah, sequence think, is just and, yeah, and the, the build up to where he's just like, you know, like, what, what do you care about, Justice? You don't even care whether you've got the right man or not. All you know <laughs> is that you've lost something and someone's got to be punished. You're a butcher is essentially right. what he says to him. Yeah, no, I mean, I, it's it's that part is very powerful and moving. It's like it's really what the whole shit is about. Right. It's really yeah. what it's, mm -hmm. it's, and it's. I think, too, like 
man, we're living in times that, you know, not to make this about, that's the thing. When I watch movies sometimes, I just, I just, I keep, especially older ones, I keep thinking about how, wow, shit really don't be changed. <laughs> yeah, we're, yeah, we're still wrestling with this stuff. It's a horrible thing to experience. Yeah. The problems right. are the same, man. <laughs> we're still wrestling with this idea of like, okay, people are in fear. And so what they're going to do is that they're going to overcompensate with that by kind of having this mob mentality and having this, um, you know, not, you know, true um, a scapegoat scapegoat and not yeah right scapegoat and not having this true sense of uh, uh justice and rather mm-hmm. um, you know it's very unjust violence and unjust way of thinking and so i mean at the end you know what i love is uh, martin feeling sorry for the uh, posse members right because you know they're gonna have to live with you know what they did and you know I, the sheriff as well kind of it leaves no doubt whether leaves no doubt whether these people did this. I mean, we know this as a viewer, but it, it just has such a way of sinking you and being like, wow, okay, this is a matter of fact and what it is. Like there is no interpretation other way other than wow, what we just watched was a lynching and it was an unjust one. It's, I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's it, it, yeah, I mean, I, I love personally that they don't even get like a chance to celebrate I, it right. like at all, say. you know, yeah. like so they don't fast. they don't get a moment to think that what they've done is right. It's immediately shot down because they literally they do this this hanging. They ride away and someone the, the sheriff comes over being like, what's all this fucking gunfire is going on over here <laughs> the, the, of them executing yeah. the dudes on the hanged rope? And he goes, yeah, so it turns out Kincaid's not dead. He's in the hospital. That was uh, he wasn't murdered. <laughs> Yeah, and also we we caught the three. We think we caught the men who shot him, and they all go uh, like just the Uh-oh. looks on their faces. They all look around at each other, and he's just like, you know, we already, we already, we so already we hanged did them. something, sheriff. Yeah, and and he straight up goes like, like who did who did it? And they were like all but seven, all but seven. And yeah, the sheriff's like, God have mercy on you because you will not be getting any from me and not from this film yeah. either because the following scene is the fucking major's son going up to him at the house and being like I saw your face it was the face of a depraved murderous beast only two things ever meant anything to you power and cruelty and you know you can't feel pity you can't feel guilt you knew that they were innocent but you wanted to see them hanged and you wanted me to watch it and you know I could have stopped you with a gun just like any other animal could have been stopped but I couldn't do it because I'm a coward and he's like are, are you proud of me like you, your son is a coward and then you just hear him shoot himself in the next room <laughs> so wild oh my god <laughs> you know what that reminded me of was uh the warden shooting himself in Shawshank. <laughs> you're right <laughs> yeah definitely <laughs> it was it was so like it was so like oh yeah my time is done we're doing it <laughs> we're doing this shit i'm just keeping no i've been keeping all consequences i'm just gonna shoot myself yeah 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 again it's so tormented and so filled with with guilt as they all again complete silence that shot of them all just sitting at the bar looking down at their drinks being like wow you know having to live with the thought of what we've done and this is what the rest of their days are going to be like because it's where we opened where they all sat around at the bar yeah and then we basically get like what 
it could essentially be a message from the dead where yeah. uh, Fonda starts to read off the letter that was going to go to his family and will eventually go to his family. And it is essentially mm-hmm. just saying, like, all of these men will have to live with the guilt. Um, and at the very least, I know that I'm an innocent person. Uh, and yeah, it's just. You know, just them sitting there listening to these words, knowing they did wrong and hearing it from the very person that they just hanged, uh, who was fighting for his life that entire time prior. Um, yeah. You know, you who's, just, who's you just saying, I guilt. feel sorry for them because for this yes, exact reason, right. they're going to have they, to sit there and them. think about this yeah. for the rest of their life. Whereas like my time on this earth is like done. You yeah. Know, it's soon to be done very clearly. Yeah, um, it is yeah. just yeah. devastating. It's a really powerful yeah, moment. Yeah. And then having Fonda then be the one to decide that he's going to go and deliver it to, you know, the family. And he rides out of town in the exact same shot that he run in. Again, it's just right. this focus on the pure mundanity of him just riding out of town on another mission to go and deliver a letter. But it's just, you know, again, it to have filled it with so much like scary, sad atmosphere, um, you know, over the course of the film, like that shot means something totally different. Right. Yeah. Cause I mean, you, you, even with the, the big, you know, orchestral, uh, crescendo and everything that almost seems like it would be out of a more typical Western. Uh, yeah. You, you, just, you would, you would feel like the, the heroes seen. have saved the day and are like riding out of town now. And that's like, yeah. it, it's so, it's so funny, like how it tries to give you that shot and it's just not <laughs> the feeling of it at all. Defeated and heartbroken. Yeah. 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 You're just way too defeated to even enjoy like a single aspect of it. Kind of it's yeah. It's <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, no. I mean, it, which listeners of the show will know is my shit. Um, Absolutely, it is. I, I, I like going to the the absolute depths of depravity and, uh, <laughs> and to to misery. to have something this bleak in 1943. Yeah, crazy. Uh, kind of blows my mind because, like, even with pre code, you can you can at least make the argument that it was you know it was before the code. You know, they could get away with it, but like, I don't know how they got away with. Uh, with with this one actually even in the in in the reviews some of them were like really unhappy with it uh one of the ones that i thought was incredible uh called the film depressing unpleasant and whoever is responsible for selecting such sordid <laughs> material for the screen should be the one put on trial <laughs> yeah oh my god who, who wrote- I don't, I don't even remember i just i just oh, harrison's uh, report i'm looking at it now harrison's report. Oh, okay Apparently, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, apparently it was kept on the shelf for months, too, because Fox was like, I don't know how to market this thing. This is the most like depressing thing we've ever watched. So, you know, what's really it, it's what's really interesting is in 98, it got selected for the Library of Congress. So it took a while for this movie to become kind of like, mm. oh, shit, people, you know, people appreciate it. People love it. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. It also lost Best Picture to a notoriously kind of like. And Casablanca is great, but it's a notoriously like upbeat type of like everyone can get involved in this type of like movie, yeah, right? Even though the ending is, even though the ending necess- isn't necessarily like a happy one, quote unquote. It kind of sort of is like a little bit, like it's like you know, uh, 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 you know, Rick and the and, and the um, and the captain are kind of are kind of boys now or whatever. Um, and so it's a little bit of a different vibe than what happens here. And <laughs> you kind of you kind of start you kind of think about like. Oh wow! Okay, movies like this have been losing Oscars for so long. Yeah, for sure. I I personally think I like I do like this better than uh, Casablanca. I I do like Casablanca, oh, yeah. obviously, but this yeah I think this hits me uh, a lot harder. 
Um, yeah, it's better Castle Rock. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. We are deciding on this show right now. No one can disagree. Objectively, William yes. A. Wellman's The Oxbow Incident, better film than Casablanca. Um, <laughs> tell all your friends, tell all your family members. This is um, also apparently uh, Clint Eastwood's favorite movie which I was is gonna pretty say, yeah, yeah, was, definitely i mean you yeah, can see he definitely yeah. channeled that anger and misery down the line with his high plains weapons. drifter yeah. are you kidding me oh yeah, yeah. for <laughs> sure for sure so that, I mean, that's cool to see i mean yeah i mean it, it's you know forgiven is a totally different movie but i can totally see eastwood being really into this right richard jewels is a is a movie about you know Essentially, people believing this man did something that he definitely he, they, they, they definitely didn't do, and not even thinking that someone else even remotely did it mm-hmm. until the very end, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think um, I can clearly see the influence that Eastwood had on it. Yeah, yeah. No, same, same here. I think this is amazing. Yeah, obviously pivoting towards um reductive rating round. Uh, for me, this is the this is the five. Um, I nice. I am really really. Um, impacted by this for a lot of the reasons that we've already said like just how dark and harrowing of a depiction this is of me- of mob justice and how it predates so many of our finest examples of of this like i'm still surprised at how early this is even the novel 1940 like it was a really really dark subject matter for the time that even predates mccarthyism itself and yeah, you the know, only one so- i can really think of is like that we've seen anyway is um m Kind of does it? Yes. Uh, yeah, there but, is a little bit of that mob quality there for sure. But yeah, but like this is one of the earliest, especially just for how bleak it is. So yeah, and 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 personally, the thing I love about it is how the didactic speechifying and like again the the characters calling for righteousness is you know kept at a minimum so that it can develop this mood of you know just horrifying um, dour and bitter anticipation for what it is that's going to. Um, come and how mundane and distressing that is like again uh, so much of this movie is waiting and waiting and sitting around with these characters being like can we do anything about this probably not it's just going to keep going like you know like that's the the feeling you get out of this and I like, like that Fonda here unlike in 12 Angry Men it's cool to see, you know, him at the center doing two completely different performances because Gil is just so much more quiet and flawed and a little bit rougher and tougher. And he completely resigns himself to being powerless and just becoming this tormented witness yeah. um, who eventually does become a culpable bystander and feels awful about it. And whereas yeah, sure, like it for, just feels like, you know, completely um, kind of uh, humanity has pressured. been restored. Yeah. And, and, and he feels like a need to to keep fighting, whereas Gil's here seems a little more passive, 100 percent. Yeah. 100%, yeah. And, and and that's what's so interesting is that, you know, like what might be read as simple moralizing on the page here is just it's given a real mundane structure to it. And it's given a real sense of, uh, you know, like unbearable waiting and and pain to it. And I, I think a real depiction of what it would feel like to be stuck inside of one of these mobs and being swept up in one and not being able to do anything about it. And, you know, again, the sort of fatalistic machine that's impossible to stop, like the like the the, the wheels on a train kind of deal. It's like mm-hmm. it's just it's not going to happen. So um, and again, it's layered with so much intensely fatalistic images, all of those nooses hanging in the background, all of those light rays, all of the shots of the trees, uh, you know, again, just so beautiful and so brutal and intentionally both anticlimactic and like a horror story 
yeah. and this is the western from 1943 so like it's 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 really crazy to me that this exists yeah, yeah. It, there's, there's no romanticization in this at all none mm-hmm. yeah none. good word yeah it, it, it's just i mean it, it it really breaks you down by the end of the movie i was like <laughs> god damn I don't know if I can start my day. Like, yeah. don't have much faith anymore. Dude, that's so funny that that actually is what the, the New York Times review, which was one of the few positive reviews in 43, was uh, the Expo incident well, Bosley, is not a picture. Bosley, you know, Bosley's never wrong. Yeah, he, he, he was like, not a picture that will bright, brighten or cheer your day up, but it is one for which the sheer stark drama is currently hard to beat. But it's very funny yeah. that it's the same wording. He was just like, yeah, you know, you're it's a <laughs> day ruiner. My day he, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it's it's i mean bozy's never wrong man that's 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 a guy right there um <laughs> no it's it's five for me i mean um in different ways in 12 angry man but but definitely still a five for me i was i'm not sure if sometimes i get fives and like it's hard for me to rewatch but there's still fives. Right. this might be one of them i don't know if, but and it does have a quick runtime so maybe i definitely will check it out but yeah. man, talk about a talk about a mundane, cold, and, and depressing but powerful masterpiece. You got this one right here, yeah. Hell yeah, for you, Jamie. Yeah, I uh, I feel I was I was gonna give the high four, but I actually might go with the five because um, I, I I really can't think of anything that I really dislike about this. Um, even the kind of hangups, the very small hangups that I have of 12 angry men with some of its, um, some of the argumentation can be a little bit like, uh, far fetched every once in a while I find. Um, but with this, it's just more focused on just their kind of like bloodthirsty drive to kill these people and, and enact revenge. I, I think that that kind of helps it for me a little bit. Just, just the, just the focus purely on the mob mentality and the, the, this very innocent it seems sweet, man uh trying his best to prove his innocence but with like no evidence on his side basically just just kind of like trying to show his humanity and that he isn't capable of doing this kind of murder yeah and and i i Um, I do love that there's this element too where again he's like well we could just ride like five minutes and go get some evidence and they're always like no 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 like this needs to be a now like that's the we are in there's this impatient hostility and hysteria that this yeah. gets you swept up into a little bit more, I think. Yeah, because there are multiple times where the guy's like, I'm fully okay with actually going on trial. It's not like he was, he, you know, he is <laughs> explaining his innocence, obviously, because he is an innocent person. But he's also saying, I'm fully willing to go through the system. But you're not even allowing me to do that. So I don't know what to tell you here. Um, and yeah, and then it's just very, very bleak, but deservingly so. I, I really like the kind of horror-esque imageries, like the way they use the the nature and the and the really decrepit, like dead trees and, and all of that. Um, I, I think it's like especially sad. Uh, they really do a lot of accent on the sad uh like the old man that's basically just like begging for his life before they hang him and saying i don't want to die oh god i don't want to die and he's and he's yeah, not it's, really it's like, it's, like, it's like the score for the scene for a little while is just yeah. hearing this man beg for his life yeah absolutely and and he's also someone that doesn't seem to be fully aware of what's happening besides just that he's about to die so there's a lot of sadness in that too and yeah it's it's incredibly bleak it will not be a day brightener uh 
but it's it is really great. Um, and just to have this be something from 1943, I think is a is is really wild. Um, and again, love that it mm. opens and closes as like a classical western, but everything in the middle is just incredibly d- not that. At least what I've seen in your typical 40s western movies. So yeah, f- I, yeah. I think I'm going like to go with the like- five. Amazing. Yeah, no, like it is a, it is a very intentional visual like reference counterpoint to be like this should have this could have been a normal Western story. Yeah, but no, this is this is in fact, you know, even in comparison to Angry Men, this is like a very hushed and soft and kind of mature uh, thing that's not even particularly it's not even as like dynamically uh, directed like Angry Men is, where it's no. constantly making these huge dramatic gestures. It, but somehow it's still just filled with so much impending doom to it. It's a yeah. really insane balancing act that that Wellman um, pulls off. So I, yeah. I think we need to talk about some more of his stuff at some point. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah and, and then I the mean, final it, thing I'll say is, I just, um, I, I really, and I, we already said it, but I wanted to say it again. I really love that they spend no time with like their satisfaction after the hanging it just they're delivered the truth mm-hmm. right away and you know they're, they're, there's no moment of like catharsis for them or anything and and that's deserved so uh yeah. I, I do like that at least we have that it, it kind of it's not a brightener really but there's at least some like they definitely get punished yeah there's <laughs> some retribution yeah something <laughs> so anyway yeah yeah there's I mean, if if the people aren't going to jail, you get or I mean, probably not, but you get this idea of, wow, okay, these people will never be the same again. This guy just shot himself in his yeah, yeah. that gunshot sound even it just uh, I I almost forgot about it on my second watch. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, awesome. I think that'll wrap it up for um, this week. That was 12 Angry Men 1957 and the Oxbow incident from 1943. Thanks so much, Jason, for uh, yeah, joining us and, and talking about these films with us. I was I was very oh, yeah, excited absolutely. that you wanted to. You were so passionate and wanted to talk about 12 Angry Men. It, it forced me to rewatch it because I haven't, I honestly don't think I had even watched it since like civics class high school so i was and it, it holds up it's a great film yeah um so yeah thanks so much for joining us and if, if what's going on in jason world you got anything to plug while you're here any new um, any new pieces any always, coming up i'm always working i got some coming on on french montana soon i got some coming Sweet. up uh tomorrow on rsk nephew uh, uh i uh, did a concert review for his performance so i got a bunch of stuff coming up thank you for letting me come come through and talk about these movies i mean I love the movies, man. I just it's yeah. like one of those. I mean, we all do it. It's just one of those, you know. I'm grateful that I've been a, that I could be a part of a movie community like this, and I'm just grateful that um grateful that I've been introduced to them in my light world more, and they make me think about myself more. And um, they just they they're just a fascinating piece of art, a piece of medium. And so, uh, Twelve Angry Men and Oxbow Incident, they're both really great. And to your point, Jamie, like. Uh, a movie in 1942 being this bleak, we love it, right? Yeah. Like, oh yeah. Um, I remember, I remember, I felt similar when I first watched Sunset Boulevard because I was like, oh damn, for sure. And like, you know what I mean? That ending too was like really, and I watched that when I was a kid too, and that movie was really uh, huge for me. So, um, I just we, we love we. we we love bleak endings. Yeah, we do love bleak endings. So yeah, uh, appreciate appreciate you guys having me on. Yeah, actually, real quick, it kind of reminded me of something. Uh, when they do that split in the sand, 
I thought it was going to be like the original version of when they, you know, that that heroic moment of like everyone comes on the right side of the line and they say, no, we're not going to hang them. And I just love that the movie's mm-hmm. like, no, actually, we're going to give you about seven. And then, you know, 35 other people are going to yeah. still want the and hanging. Here's the so slowest, just- like two minute long <laughs> pan across every single person saying, yeah, no, you're wrong. Um, yeah. We're going to kill these guys. Yeah, it's really yeah. subverted my yeah. expectation of what was going to come from this era and that idea because i just you know the idea of someone you know the the, the mob going over to the right side is very um it, it's it's been done a, a bunch of times and i thought this might be the original and it's the opposite so that was cool too and and uh yeah sunset boulevard is a good uh, a good point jason and uh, mm-hmm. people should look forward to it because we're finally going to be talking about it in november sometime this year so everyone can wow. yeah it's coming up on set Boulevard. It's getting covered. I'm not going to spoil the double feature, but I like the second film just oh. as much as Sunset Boulevard. So um, we are going to have I mean, a crazy bleak time. Y'all have some really great uh, episodes where you talk about features that are both equally s- similar in stature and quality and just like fame. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. Like Casino Goodfellas, you guys did one time. There was, I think, In a Lonely Place. You did In a Lonely Place with something, too, as well. We haven't done In a Lonely Place yet, actually. But now it's been spoiled. That's the double feature. Oh, there you go. <laughs> We're going to do In a Lonely Place and Sunset Boulevard at some point. That was, and if it did, <laughs> that, I felt was like, oh, wow, these these two movies are very... Uh, in the same uh, uh, in the same sense. Hell yeah. Well, thank but, uh, you, man. Yeah, we, 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 it was... It was uh, <laughs> no, no, no. No problem. I, I, I didn't have to jump in and say it. I just am really excited about that. I've literally had that double feature planned out doing because it's so such a dark Hollywood specific thing because like they're both screenwriters in both yeah. of those films. And man, right. I, I can't year, wait to too, do right? uh, Humphrey, Humphrey Bogart, Billy Wilder. What's that? Sorry? Same year, too. Same year, too, right? You know what? It might be the same year. You might be right on that. I think it's the same year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same Wild year. year and, um, yeah. Yeah, so um, that's yeah. going to be a crazy episode later in the year. Everyone can definitely look forward to that. Um, but yeah, everyone also go follow Jason on uh, on Twitter. Go uh, yeah. go keep track keep track of his writing. Follow him on Letterboxd. He's always watching films. Always take always giving me recommendations and taking recommendations. Uh, we are going to be for our listeners. We're going to be back in one week's time, where we are going to be in uh, continuing the Western track uh off of oxbow incident we're gonna go spaghetti western mode because we haven't talked about a spaghetti western in a little while i realized so we're gonna do um one of the more sort of like underrated names in my opinion of spaghetti westerns we're gonna talk about the sergio that gets talked about a little bit less than leone a little bit less than corbucci we're gonna <laughs> talk about sergio salima uh who directed the big gun down with lee van cleef and face to face and i think are both incredible very, very politically minded spaghetti westerns. The Big Gun Down actually even co-written by the guy who wrote uh, Battle of Algiers. So yeah. it's like a very, very intense examination of like people realizing that they uh, by being a lawman, that they are an extension of something very uh, evil and systemic in a way. So we're going to talk about those two films. And then in two weeks time, we have a special returning guest who did an episode that almost kind of pairs with Jason's episode. We have Eddie Averill coming back from the extended clip podcast where he is going to be no, no joke. He's going to be doing Once Upon a Time in the West, starring Henry Fonda, the Spaghetti Western <laughs> nice. by Sergio Leone, and My Darling Clementine, starring Henry Fonda, directed oh, by yeah. John Ford. So we're going to be talking hey. Henry Fonda four movies in a row. 
it works out. I mean, Ronda was great. I mean, he he re- you said it you said it earlier this quality of like not really an action star, not really a tough guy, but someone with character that you can still trust. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you see that in a lot of stars now. Denzel has that. Denzel's a little bit more action based than I think every father is, but Denzel also has that. Um, and and yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, real real star, real. I mean, Redford had that as well. I mean, real, real famous yeah. star. It's a, a, a classic Hollywood actor. Hell yeah. No, yeah, we're, we're very excited to keep on the Fonda train. Uh, but yeah, that being said, I think that's going to wrap it up for everything this week. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening and keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy. <laughs>